This story is about Howard Beale, who was the network news anchorman on UBS TV. In his time, Howard Beale had been a mandarin of television, the grand old man of news with a hut rating of 16 and a 28 audience share. In 1969, however, his fortunes began to decline. He fell to a 22 share. The following year, his wife died, and he was left a childless widower with an 8 rating and a 12 share. He became morose and isolated, began to drink heavily. And on September 22, 1975, he was fired, effective in two weeks. The news was broken to him by Max Schumacher, who was the president of the news division at UBS. The two old friends got properly pissed. Welcome to our season of Raging Against the Machine, in which we discuss classic rage-filled films and see how they hold up for a modern audience. We're starting it off with perhaps the ragiest film of all, Network. I'm your host, a man who thinks maybe things aren't actually as bad as we think, and has kind of gotten used to putting up with the world as it is. My co-host is Guy, whose hosting career may be at risk if his Q score falls any further. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. And joining us today is Nick Gillespie, Editor-at-Large for Reason. Hello, Nick. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Hello. So, Guy, you originally suggested this film, which led us to developing the concept for this season. So what's your kind of background with this film? I think I first saw it maybe, maybe two decades ago, roughly. I don't remember exactly. I think I may have seen it mentioned on... Um, the Boomer Bible website. There's a book called the <laughs> Boomer Bible, and and back then they had a website for it. And uh, uh, I think the net network was mentioned on it, and that got me curious about it. And I watched it, and I just kind of fell in love with it. You know, I liked the dark humor and the uh, the comments on dehumanization and de deindividualization and so forth. Uh, and it's just it's one of those movies I can I can endlessly rewatch. So uh, yeah, I like it. Okay. It is certainly rage-filled. You know, and I, I read somewhere in prep for this that uh, I think Patty Chayefsky at some point wanted George C. Scott, who mm. is like you know the rageaholic right. yeah, god, right? right? Uh, <laughs> and who had been in an earlier uh, Chayefsky movie, Hospital. Um, mm. Yeah, but it, yeah, a yeah, lot of rage. We've encountered Chayefsky a few times. We did Ice Station Zebra, which he actually originally wrote, but then he was fired because. They needed to work with the Navy, and the Navy didn't like his script, <laughs> surprisingly oh, well. enough. Yeah. And he yeah, wrote... He's, uh, uh, he's, he wrote, um, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, the, the William Hurt, uh, Ken Russell movie, right? Uh, was that Altered States? Yeah, Altered States. Yeah, it's but he, but he took, Sarah, yeah, yeah, and you guys, yeah, and, and yeah. he took his name off that, though, uh, because he had uh, a falling yeah. out with Russell. Who by yeah, all he was trying to a, direct the film. Yeah. <laughs> well, and Russell is, you know, by most accounts, a horrible human being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tend to be on his side in that one, though. Uh, uh, yeah. But, I think but that's he, one of his most watchable movies, too. Right, He's right. made a lot of things which are like, I In don't part because he was pulling back from what Chayefsky wanted him to yeah. do. You know, Chayefsky wanted him to just go all out and, you know, be very abstract and all this. And mm -hmm. Russell was like, people have got to understand what's happening in this movie. Yeah. And yet, when you're on the wrong side of that argument with Ken Russell, you have right. your, I don't know, you, I want to be on that drug. <laughs> yeah, so people can go listen to that episode for a full explanation of that uh, very interesting film. So, 
Nick, you're, you're in media, but uh, you didn't yep. kind of go through the whole, you know, foreign correspondent, uh, <laughs> you know, or I guess newsroom person for, or, or, you know, delivering the mail, then becoming a correspondent. And how did you get to where you're at? <laughs> well, yeah, I, uh, you know, I, so I'm an editor at large at Reason Magazine. I'm a former editor in chief there of the print magazine, the website and our video platform. Uh, but Reason counts as alternative media. It's, uh, you know, it's not corporate. We're uh, run by a nonprofit. It was established in 1968. And, uh, uh, you know, and before that, I was, um, I worked for a bunch of kind of marginal teen magazines, music magazines, uh, movie magazines in New York. And I also, the closest I came to kind of legacy media is I was a correspondent or a stringer for a couple of newspapers in New Jersey, which had old style bullpens. I'm 58. Uh, the same age as William Holden was when he made Network. And I'm yeah. here to just lord over him that I am his same age, and he looks 158. I look, <laughs> I think something has changed. And, of course, only a few years after this, Holden, who was a massive alcoholic, like in a way that I don't think we produce them anymore, um, he uh, he died when he was drunk, stumbled in his bedroom, hit his head on his bedpost, and then was found a couple days later. Wow. Um, you know, and he had also killed someone in in uh, Italy in a drunk driving accident, like in the right. 60s. But uh, hmm. he every, every uh, you know, kind of drink shows up on his face and in his nose in network. Uh, <laughs> but in any case, the, you know, the closest I came to, you know, the, the kind of machine uh, that was, you know, that is somewhat, you know, in the background of network is I, I worked in a newsroom, uh, you know, where people were all sitting typing, you know, on typewriters, you know, pounding mm, out copy right. and things like that. Um, but I, um, you know, I, I went to college. I worked uh, at, you know, on my school newspaper. I was a culture editor. And I, when I graduated college, I wanted to write. I mean, that was like the only semi-skill that I had. And I became... <laughs> a journalist and ultimately found my niche in entertainment journalism on these kind of marginal magazines um, that were kind of great in their own ways. And then I went to grad school and ended up at Reason, which now is, you know, highly respected um, and, you know, but we're, we're alternative media. So, uh, mm -hmm. and this might, Guy, I'm just setting you up for this because I know you <laughs> like network and I find it, I think it's an imp incredibly important and powerful document, but I'm like, no. I, I'm glad that everything about this movie is both, it was always wrong about the audience in, in particular, but its whole, the world it describes has been destroyed. Um, and I think that's a good thing for American well, society. That may be, that strikes me as a bit optimistic, but we'll, uh, you know, we can go through that as the yeah. episode goes yeah. on. Okay. Uh, so that's where I'm coming from. Right. Okay. So we have our panel here. So Guy and I will now retreat to our personal screening room to talk through the film, and then we'll be back to continue with Nick. <laughs> okay, Guy and I are now going to talk through the movie. And if you would rather get back to our conversation with Nick Gillespie, we understand, and there are bookmarks in this podcast, so you can just jump past our discussion, although we hope you'll stick around. But if you don't want to, Go ahead and use the bookmark, and you can get back to our discussion with Nick. And now, on to our contractually obligated discussion of the movie. <laughs> we start with four TV screens showing the news anchors for each network. And this is a real callback for a modern viewer, because you're kind of reminded, 
like how different, you know, news consumption is today. I have hundreds and hundreds of sources of news between blogs and podcasts and Twitter and, you know, all these things. And I pay no attention whatsoever mm. to normal newscasts. But I grew up, we grew up in this time where you either read the newspaper or you watched one of three networks. And as <laughs> Nick mentions in our discussion, it's not like, and, and they actually comment on it in the movie, it's not like they were really doing in-depth news. We like to think they were. They were spending 10 seconds on one story and 10 seconds on another story. I remember seeing a transcription of a news show compared to one page of a newspaper. And it's like the entire news show fits in a tiny part of one page of a newspaper. <laughs> yeah, I can believe it. They used to have, uh, at least in the Cleveland area, some of the UHF stations would do their little news breaks, but they were um, they were probably just mostly reeling off information that they got from AP or UPI or something right. like that. So three of these TV screens are showing actual networks that existed with actual anchors. And one of them is a fake network, UBS, with a fake anchor for this show, uh, for this movie, Howard Beale. Uh, it's kind of funny because, again, eventually we would have a fourth network, but that was a long time in the future. Mm -hmm. And we get a narrator. It's a little odd. This narrator pops up, I think, three times in the movie. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I don't know how I feel about it. He's got a few moments, yeah. It might be five or six, but yeah, not very often. Yeah, it's usually just a sentence or two. So it kind of, it feels to me like they had a screenplay problem in certain cases, so they just used a narrator to bridge things without having to come up with some story explanation or showing you some TV screen or something. Yeah, two of my favorite movies had versions that uh, that added a narrator. Blade Runner, there was a version of it with mm -hmm. a narrator. And then uh, The Thing, also, there was a television broadcast version where they, I think they just had to cut so much of The Thing out to be able to broadcast <laughs> it on TV. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, a network or a narrator doesn't doesn't always work. In this, in this movie, it didn't bother me. I, uh, yeah. I, I it's okay. It's unobjectionable. Just a, I, I did not know about the thing, and I <laughs> I can only imagine narrator saying, and now this one's been taken over. Wait and see. But, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, Blade Runner, look, I'm just one of those shows I have a huge, huge history with, would love to talk about it sometime. You know, I've seen every damn version of the movie and been to talks about it and with people who are involved and all sorts of stuff. And there are people who appreciate the narrated version, which was the original commercial version, because it is a pretty opaque movie, but if you've seen mm -hmm. it 20 plus times, then, then the narration is just really annoying. <laughs> uh, <but. laughs> okay. So back to our movie today, uh, Howard has been, Howard Beale, the news anchor has been out drinking with his buddy and colleague, Max and Max, while well, they've been out has just fired him <laughs> and they have two <laughs> weeks left. And there's just the kind of friendship and working together where they can Max can fire him and then they can go out for a night on the town and, and drink themselves silly. And mm -hmm. in the midst of, you know, his putting one on, <laughs> Howard says he'll kill himself right in the middle of the seven o'clock news. And Max humors him by speculating about having a suicide terrorism of the week show and how popular it would be. You could call it the death hour and it would be great Sunday night programming for the whole family. And of course, Max doesn't realize that he's actually foretelling what is going to happen in this movie. Mm, yeah. 
<laughs> and also I'll say, um, you know, one thing that really bothers me, of course, not, not that you sh- it should be stopped or whatever, but is you can go online and see terrorists, you know, now beheading people and that sort of thing. And I, I have a personal policy. I never watch anything like that. I, it just, I don't want, you know, uh, I don't want to experience that sort of thing, but it's there if you want to see it. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, uh, back in the eighties in high school, I had a lot more, more of a taste for gore than I do now. So I, I don't really seek out things like that nowadays, but I, I think it is useful. There was several, many years ago, uh, well, after 9-11 at some point, there was a journalist, I think his name was Daniel Pearl, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, mm-hmm. he was beheaded by, yeah. uh, by fundamentalists. And uh, um, I think, I, I mean, I never watched it, and I don't have a desire to, but I think the information that that, that happened is... You know, a good fact for people to have access to. No, you're right. Um, and a couple of those, especially his, sort of changed people's opinions about things for better or worse. But I mean, it did impact people and it did get people in the United States to, you know, think maybe something needed to be done that they might not have otherwise. Mm-hmm. So next we see Howard Beale, because he has two weeks left. Um, this is a polite time when you weren't just run out of the run out of your office. <laughs> and he's running a, one of those typical news planning meetings that either newspapers or networks have where they're figuring out their major stories for the show. And one of the things you see right away is, you know, every important story is getting like 10 seconds of coverage and they're timing out exactly how long things are going to take and where they are in the show. And of course, when you have, I mean, it used to actually be as, as Nick mentioned, 15 minutes, but we have like a 30 minute news show you're going to have to time it down like that, right? To, to cram everything mm-hmm. in. And then you have ads and, and all that. And this is a very professional news meeting and it seems like everything is, you know, fine. Uh, one of the things I noticed that, that Patty Chavsky chose to do in the movie is he made it a very contemporary movie. He makes all sorts of references that are not explained. So they mentioned Squeaky Fromm, who, you know, these days, if you're a young person, you probably wouldn't know that she tried to kill the president. And mm-hmm. all sorts of other references. And it's just, this is a movie of that time. And you either get the references or you don't. Yeah. Although, uh, for the cinephiles, um, Squeaky From, I think, makes an appearance in um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, mm. which came out not too long ago. Um, As a character or the person? I know. I think she's at, at Spawn's Ranch when mm. uh, Brad Pitt's character goes in and she's sitting in the living room watching TV. Right. I think that's supposed yeah. to be Squeaky uh, Yeah, I think you're right. So, him. yeah, not the actual person. I, I don't even remember if she's alive now. But, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, the character, yeah, makes sense. And we now forward to seeing the actual news show. But instead of going with any of that stuff they planned, Howard Beale <laughs> announces on air that he's been fired for low ratings and he's going to kill himself next Tuesday on the air. And I'm using a little bit here. Everyone in the control room is so focused on their own things and talking to each other. They just keep the show going. No one notices that he just threatened to kill himself for about 30 seconds. And I actually understand that. I've been in that sort of control room doing those things. And you're not really usually paying a whole lot of attention to what's going on. Oh, sure. Yeah, they're not hanging on his every word. They're waiting for the next cue to Mm. switch a camera or whatever. (laughs) So once they do catch on that something not too cool is happening, they kind of go to a card, you know, technical difficulties, and they decide to forcibly remove Howard 
from his desk, but they accidentally go back on the air while he's being, you know, people have come in and are fighting with him to pull him away from his desk. <laughs> so that doesn't look too good. And then we're in the offices of the network and Robert Duvall, who plays Hackett, is pulling Howard off the air. And yeah. mm-hmm. no, no more two weeks notice necessary. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, they go through, you know, they have like three TVs there and all the other news outlets are reporting on this already. And we see the first fight between Hackett and Max over the news division. Cause you know, this was a time when news was supposed to be hands off, like the network couldn't tell them what to do. They weren't required to make money. And, uh, we're starting to see a fight here about this. Yeah. That's, it's an interesting situation because, um, yeah, like as they say in the movie, the the news division isn't accountable to network, and why it would be done that way, I, I can only think it must be a prestige issue. You mm-hmm. know, like the news has to be so inviolate or perceived as inviolate that it just can't be seen to have the same grubby monetary concerns that the rest of the ne- network would have. Yeah, and part of the reason that started, and we had a little bit of discussion around this with Nick, is that because TV was regulated, because it was considered a scarce resource, networks needed to prove to the government that they had um, worthwhile content, you know, socially redeeming content. So that's Mm -hmm. why they were willing to put up with money losing news, because that was their way to say, hey, don't bother us about our sitcoms because we are improving the world with this, you know, uh, high quality news stuff. Um, yeah. And of course the people running it are never going to be happy about sending out checks for a money losing division, but that was the deal they needed to make to, so that the government would leave them alone. Right. Max goes to a screening room and Faye Dunaway, who plays Diana is there and some other guy (laughs) who never really learned who he is. Actually, I think he's Faye Dunaway's boyfriend. Hmm. And they're reviewing film to be used for things in the future. And one of the films they review is of a revolutionary group who filmed themselves robbing a bank. And the shots from this are very clearly from, or based on, uh, oh, what's her name? It was Patty Hearst. Yeah, the, these are very clearly based on Patty Hearst. They even reference Patty Hearst in the movie, but this isn't yeah. actually her. And this this group has their own wealthy heiress that they've kidnapped. (laughs) Everyone should have one. It's not Patty Hearst. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so it's pretty remarkable (laughs) them filming themselves robbing the bank, and, you know, they're debating how they might be able to use this. And in the middle of this, Howard Beale calls to the room and convinces Max to let him go on the show one more time so he can do a proper send-off, and he promises he's going to be behaved. (laughs) (laughs) Sure he will. Yeah, and Diana then is in her office with her team, and that bank robbery video got her really excited. And we get some background on her here. She's new to the company. She joined about six months ago. The company has historically bad ratings around their creative programming. And so she is, you know, shaking everything up, and she's decided she wants a weekly series following terrorists. So we're already bringing to reality that that vision that Max mentioned at the beginning. And she makes it clear she wants counterculture and anti-establishment programming, which, as we'll see, she doesn't care about the politics of it at all. This is just a programming thing for her. She she is part of the establishment. (laughs) Yeah, Um, she she wants what's going to titillate viewers. Yeah. 
And she's clearly this tough boss, and she threatens to fire everyone if they don't get in shape. Yeah, well, she she had a well. It, it may have been a excessive, but uh, but she gave everybody a memo to read. None of them mm-hmm. read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she says, "The next time I give you something to read and you don't, I'll sack the lot of you." No, and Seems you're right. She's to totally justified in doing that. You know, yeah. <laughs> and now we're at this big board meeting, and Robert Duvall Hackett is announcing changes he's going to be making. And he says that, you know, historically news divisions don't make money, but he doesn't understand that. So he's going to restructure it to be accountable to network. And Max is sitting there next to him on the dais, and he is furious because he wasn't told about this announcement. He was surprised by it and obviously insulted by it. But his boss is just saying, we'll talk about this at our next daily meeting. I'm not going to talk to you about it now. And this has a lot of, well, this basically enables the rest of the movie, as <laughs> we'll see, because Max has now been alienated and he no longer feels he needs to be responsible to the network. So we're now <laughs> watching the news show again, and Howard has promised he's going to do his, you know, contrite uh, goodbye. And instead, he says, I just ran out of bullshit. <laughs> and he starts to every other sentence has bullshit in it and, and all this. And, you know, the, the control room calls Max and says, what do we do? And he's like... <laughs> Let him go. <laughs> he doesn't care anymore. And then, of course, in 1976, the uh, the words you could use on television without getting an FCC fine were uh, much more limited than what you can get away with today. <laughs> yep. And, or that you could always do in Britain. That's something I kind of respected about British shows. Mm-hmm. And Robert Duvall Hackett, you know, calls up Max, tells him he needs to pull Howard off the air. And... <laughs> And Max tells him to go fuck himself and gets himself fired, basically. But again, if they hadn't sandbagged him and insulted him in public, basically, then he would have pulled Howard off the air and potentially the rest of the show movie wouldn't have happened. <laughs> All right. And we're back in Diana's office. And her assistant, who's a really good actress, and I, I couldn't find the credit for her, and I could have sworn that she was Kathy Bates, but probably uh, too old to be Kathy Bates, you know, at that time. But very much a Kathy Bates mm-hmm. kind of vibe, that kind of intelligence to her acting. Right. Yeah, she summarizes a series of TV show proposals that the team has put together for Diana. And, you know, they're all basically the same, and they all start with a crusty but benign boss, and then, the, the, you know, <laughs> the kind of uppity employee and, and all this. In one scenario or another, there's a funny one called the Amazons or something. It's going to be about a, a group of women cops, you know, that sort of thing. And they have a crusty yeah. benign boss. <laughs> and I, th- I think all these pictures are shows that we've seen in one form or another. That, right. <laughs> yeah, that have actually existed at some point. And Diana points out to her assistant that for all the big news happening in the world right now, you know, there's a lot of references to the Arab oil embargo. <laughs> Guess what? We're kind of... Back in that uh, cycle again these days. But, <laughs> um, yeah. but for all the stuff going on in the world, Howard Beale has the entire front page of the newspaper. So mm. she goes to Hackett and tells him they need to keep Howard on the air. They stumbled into a ratings bonanza. And he pushes back, but she convinces him to do it. She's very convincing in this scene. She's uh, there, there's I think it's this scene where she has one moment. Where he says something like that would be manifestly irresponsible, and she just sort of leans over his desk and looks him in the face and just gives him this mischievous nod, you know, like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and he sort of smiles. He seems, you know, uh, 
you know, he seems to think, oh, yeah, you're right. We should do this. <laughs> Irresponsible <laughs> thing. So the nudist division is told to put Howard back on the air and to <laughs> turn the, change the show to let him air out his anger every night. And some want to resign over this. But Howard Beale decides he wants to be an angry prophet denouncing the hypocrisy of our times. <laughs> and Max's boss, uh, I never quite caught his name. He's this white-haired guy. He's not around too too long. He has a heart attack after a bit here. But he actually supports this because he thinks it's a bad idea. And Hackett, who is his enemy, is making a mistake that will get him sacked. And then that will be good for the news division because Hackett can stop trying to restructure the news division. Yeah. So he asked Max to stay on his job because if Hackett gets fired, he needs Max's support to continue defending news. Now, here's an interesting twist, not what you would expect. This new Howard Beale show, where he goes on and is, you know, angry every night, actually isn't really a big hit. It's attacked by all the other outlets and, you know, respectable news organizations. And after a couple days of high ratings, the ratings start to slide because it gets to be an old stick. I thought this was surprisingly realistic. You know, normally in this kind of show, mm -hmm. you'd want to see him zooming to the top, you know? Yeah, yeah. Although we'll see a little bit later, they'll come up with a new format that works <laughs> yeah. a little better for it. Yeah, <laughs> they got to figure it out. And now we have this other thread in the movie start to come. So Diana comes to Max's office. It's late at night. It's like 730. And she tells him about this psychic who predicted that she would have an emotional relationship with a craggy middle-aged man. So she's clearly and kind of... Hitting on him. <laughs> and this psychic is Sybil, the soothsayer, who ends up being part of the new format that <laughs> revitalizes right. Howard Well, in fact, Beale she show. tells Max she wants him to put the psychic at the end of Howard's show, and she also thinks he should hire some writers to improve Howard's apocalypse. <laughs> it's not good <laughs> enough. And, of course, Max won't do it and says it's all silly. You know, he's, he'll bring it up in, in the next meeting, but he's going to torpedo it. And... She basically tells him, look, she's just trying to be nice. She's trying to work with him, but she's going to take over his show. So, you know, either he can work with her now or, or, or she'll just do it herself. Yeah. Then we take a little swerve because we get back to the uh, emotional relationship. It turns out she's had a crush on him since she was a college student. And they end up going out to dinner, even though, you know, he's married and she has a boyfriend. And Max says he doesn't do anything on a first date. <laughs> and she's uh, <laughs> skeptical. <laughs> and then another interesting twist that I thought uh, it was funny, and we, we talked about it a bit with Nick. During the dinner, she's extremely straightforward. And she goes into detail with Max about what a lousy lay she is and how, you know, she's selfish and it's over quickly. And then she just wants to get out of the room, and, you know, uh, which, you know, not talking herself up too much. But then it turns out that Max does do things on the first date, even with someone who says they're a lousy life. <laughs> and meanwhile, we switch to Howard in bed, and there's an eerie blue light on his face. And it turns out he's hearing a voice giving him instructions, and we hear him kind of repeating the instructions he's getting. And this is this the scene where it, it's uh, it ends up saying uh, because you're a television dummy. Well, he yeah he talks about it next, right? So. Uh, the next day, Max has decided to end Howard's stick and go back to straight news. And once again, Howard pretends to go along with it and, you know, does his normal job during the day. And the production people feel like he's actually going to do straight news this time. <laughs> they haven't learned yet. And, of course, once again, he does not. Once he gets on the air, 
He talks about being woken up by the voice who wants him to tell the truth to the people. And at the end, Howard says, is this supposed to be a burning bush moment? I'm not Moses. And the voice says, well, I'm not God. (laughs) And (laughs) Howard asks why it's him the voice is talking to. And the voice tells him, because you're on television, dummy. (laughs) Which will come back. (laughs) We'll come back. (laughs) So once again, they have a meeting to where Max and Howard are at heads loggerheads and max tells howard he's having a breakdown max is going to take him off the air and howard gives an impassioned speech about how he's not having a breakdown he's on the verge of a great ultimate truth and he gets really really you know out there and he's then waving his hands and he says and you'll not take me off the air for now or any other spaceless time whatever that means and then he faints <laughs> he, yeah he had been referring to uh you know his experiences with space and time and all this cosmic you know, that stuff. It's interesting because he's, uh, he seems to be having some sort of, well, either or it, it may be a nervous breakdown and maybe some kind of religious, uh, road to Damascus experience. Most likely it's, you know, a bit of both. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, that when he faints here, this, this does, uh, uh, it sets a trend in motion. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And we're back in Hackett's office, and it turns out Howard has disappeared overnight. No one can find him. And Hackett is going crazy because after his latest show, where he talked about The Voice, the ratings and the response has actually gone crazy. And they have a hit on their hands. They have to get him back on the air. They've got to find him. And Diana says, right now, it looks like he's going to be bigger than Mary Tyler Moore. So that's another one of those references. I watched a lot of that <laughs> show when I was a kid. <laughs> and Max tells him he's not putting Howard back on the air, and Diana informs him it's not your show anymore, Max. So she tried to give him a chance to work with her, and he didn't, so she took over the show. And mm-hmm. Hackett has given it to her. And it turns out that Max's boss, the one who was sort of fighting Hackett, has had a mild heart attack, and he's out of the picture. And Hackett is now making all network decisions, and his first decision he's wanted to do for a long time, he's firing Max. I'll tell you, people fire each other a lot <laughs> and then fire them again. And that's everybody gets fired two or three times. And now we see Howard walking in the rain in his pajamas and an overcoat. And he's drenched. And he goes on to the show in this state. And this is the point where we get the famous speech that culminates in him telling people to lean out the window and yell, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And Diana runs and does phone calls to a bunch of the areas where they're showing this live and she hears that people are indeed leaning out the window and yelling so she's extremely excited they've really got something here yeah and we get to see uh at max's home one of his daughters is there and she looks out the window and people across the street are leaning out of their apartment windows yelling at him mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, the fat of the hour <laughs> So Howard's rating soar, and we're told by the narrator, surpassed only by the $6 million man, all in the family, and Phyllis. And I think <laughs> that Patty Chesky is throwing some shade at $6 million man here, but I loved that show as a kid. I was obsessed with it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I never got into it too much. Um, but all in the family, I, I always liked, even when I was too young to understand most of it. Uh, I think I just liked Archie Bunker. Yep. But uh, that gets mentioned. uh, All in the Family is mentioned here. And then 
in the second half of the movie, we'll have at least two mentions of Archie Bunker. So I, right. I think that that was probably on Paddy Chayefsky's mind when he was making this movie, because all in the family brought a lot of subjects on the air that previously were taboo, you know, right. were beyond the pale. It was also the beginning of a trend that some people have pointed out, which is that TV shows would have a character that was supposed to be their bad guy. So, mm-hmm. you know, Archie Bunker was supposed to be the conservative bad guy, but you don't get to control who the audience likes. And everybody loved Archie Bunker. <laughs> so they got stuck yeah. with this person who was supposed to be the bad guy being the hero for people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, they still did try to make Mike win the ar- arguments when they could. But, right. uh, you know, they had to try and at least give Archie a little word in edgewise now and then. <laughs> <laughs> So Diana now flies to the West Coast to get her new TV shows kicked off, and she meets with Lorene Hobbs, who is a self-described commie activist, because she wants to get in contact with the terrorists that they want to use for this show. And Diana is fine with allowing Hobbs to control the political content, because she says she doesn't care about the politics. (laughs) Hobbs can say anything she wants on the show. She just wants an authentic terrorist act they can use each week, which is pretty disturbing. (laughs) And... Hobbs goes through this whole thing where she pretends she doesn't know these terrorists and says that the Communist Party disavows them because they're irresponsible and, and all this. But once Diana says how many people are going to watch, suddenly Hobbs recalls a connection with the terrorist leader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's something I've always found enjoyable about this little scene is that she brings in some lawyers with her. Laureen brings in lo- her <laughs> right. lawyers with her, and one of them is this he, he's got like one line in the whole movie but he's just this memorable character he, he's just like this sort of a sort of a short guy with he's smoking a big pipe in right. the office and uh you know he uh he just says something to diana about how he has to look askance when uh he finds out that a network is trying to uh you know do a deal with uh communist revolutionaries yep i don't remember exactly how he phrased it but it's just uh it's just a funny little scene. Like, it wasn't necessary for him to be there, but for me, having him there to deliver that one line just adds some flavor, you know, maybe verisimilitude, or it does something that was helpful to the movie, I think. Right, and it's kind of interesting that sh- that Lorreen Hobbs is black, but all of the lawyers he brings in are these sort of old white guys, and, <laughs> and the sense that he gives is he's more of a true believer than she is, right? I mean, she sells out. Mm-hmm very quickly where he's really you know serious about this stuff right and that is the first half of the movie after meeting with diana laureen goes to a farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere somewhere she meets a man this is the great ahmed khan who's the leader of the ecumenical liberation army um he's a big imposing man and laureen says to him I'm going to make a TV star out of you, just like Archie Bunker. <laughs> and he, he doesn't know exactly how to react to that. And then we, uh, that's, that's the end of that scene. He says, what the fuck are you talking per- about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, when, in our discussion with Nick, uh, I mentioned, I, I thought it was kind of weird and offensive that they show him and the people around him eating this big bucket of Kentucky fried chicken, which is just this very, you know, stereotypical, especially 60s kind of view, you know, oh, black people like to eat watermelon and chicken. But, and one, mm-hmm. uh, I don't remember if it was you or Nick, you might have, 
suggested that they they might have been doing something with that. You know, it might have been on purpose. And rewatching the movie after we talked with Nick, I actually think they were doing something. I'm not sure I totally get it. Hmm. But I think they were trying to comment on that stereotype and somehow, and I, and I think it's connected to the idea of, oh, this is this big terrorist leader, but actually, you know, he's this probably not very smart person who is being controlled by, you know, this woman. So I don't know. I still don't know what to think about it, but I do think they were doing it on purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it could be. I, I still lean towards the, uh, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you could be right. Could be right. So now we see the television studio where the Howard Beale show is is broadcast. They've revamped the format considerably. It's no longer just a, <laughs> a normal network news show. The uh, It starts off, they've got their own announcer, and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it. How do you feel? And the audience <laughs> says, We're mad as hell, and we're not going to take it anymore. Which I, I think is... Pretty perfect, because it, mm-hmm. it it's taking this thing that was sort of a spontaneous, organic movement type thing and, and just making it sort of a cliche, you know, yep, yep. Um, commercializing see, it know, or whatever you one, want to call it. You know, I, you know I'm a, I think both of us are, are generally fans of capitalism, but one thing that mm-hmm. corporations always do, right, is once something like this is in the culture, they're going to appropriate it so they can sell more tennis shoes, right? (laughs) They're going to make it part of their brand or whatever. So yeah, this is perfect. Yeah, this is, the kids are crazy about this nowadays. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. So that's, uh, that's an auspicious start, I guess, for the show. (laughs) So the announcer continues on, uh, uh, describing the components of the network news hour. Then there's Sybil the soothsayer, who we've mentioned (laughs) already. There's a guy named Jim Webbing. He's got a big uh, plaque of uh, blindfolded justice in their scales uh, on the wall behind him. And he's in charge of the, it's the Emish Truth Department. And this is, this is actually a Yiddish phrase. Uh, if you say it's the Emish Truth, it's like it's the genuine, real truth. Oh, I didn't know that. So, yeah. So his, his department is the, it's the real, genuine truth department. And each of these and, people uh, has this big thing behind them, and they're sitting at a desk, and they're rotating, you know, in and out. I mean, this is a whole yeah, production. <laughs> each of them, each of them gets a little rotating dais with its own customized backdrop. It's uh, it's pretty slick. And then there's Miss Matahari and her skeletons in the closet. We never find out. We never get to see samples of any of these segments. We only learn that they exist. Another segment of Vox Populi, and the dais for that just has a big. Uh, you know, 1970s looking computer console on it. So that's probably some kind of polling device. Yeah, know, yeah. They clear, and they have some pictures of a crowd in the background and it's, you know, and it says like, yes, no, I don't know, or something. So, yes. Right. Yeah. And finally, the announcer says, and starring the mad prophet of the airwaves, <laughs> Howard Beale. So again, they've, they've taken that, uh, a man who's, Probably quite literally going mad and yeah. uh, just com- commoditized him you know, for the show. Yeah, um, you notice, I mean, only Max is the only person in the movie who expresses any concern for Howard's mental health. Yeah. You know, everybody else. Too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> else, it's just, can we make use of this or not? And or do we have ratings or not? They don't care about anything. Yet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
And Howard Bale comes out, and he's talking about a, a rich little man with white hair who died. And that's Ruddy, who was one of the big network guys. He was Max's um, boss. and yeah. yeah. And he's saying, woe to us. And he explains why that's woe to us. And he, he has a long speech here. The, the second half of the movie has several long speeches in it. Uh, it's kind of heartbreaking not to be able to just recite all of them from the <laughs> podcast. But uh, Howard goes on to say, he explains that uh, television is the most awesome goddamn force in the whole godless world. Woe is <laughs> us if it falls into the hands of wrong, the wrong people. And in, in this man's absence, Mr. Ruddy's absence, uh, it's more likely to fall into the hands of the wrong people. So he goes on, and now he takes a uh, rather controversial stance, or at least a stance that his bosses may not care for too much. He's telling people <laughs> to turn their televisions off. He says, turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking now. He, for a moment, he gives this kind of exalted, stunned look, and then he collapses unconscious, as he did in the office before, and the crowd cheers. <laughs> they think it's a terrific act. Yeah, and I mean, at first I thought he was having some medical issue. I'd kind of forgotten about his fainting earlier. And then, you know, this happened, it, it just turns into a stick, right? After he's made sort of what he thinks is a compelling point, he'll collapse and that kind mm -hmm. of, and, and the show just goes with it, right? You know, and they just move right. on to the next thing. Yeah, and I, I, I've, I, I could be wrong. I, I've had the impression that whenever he collapses, that's a genuine medical episode. I mean, it's not something he's doing just to be theatrical, but I, I could be wrong. Well, yeah, we don't know. Certainly the TV show isn't, it's not like they have, you know, some medical technicians rushing up to him or anything. In fact, it's, at points when he collapses later, they make a point of zooming the, the camera in on his face while he's collapsed, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. As far as I can tell, these fainting episodes are just intended to be additional evidence that there's really something you know, genuinely mm -hmm. out of whack with them. We see the boardroom of the uh, of the network and the company uh, probably that owns the network, which would be CCA, I guess. At any rate, in this boardroom, uh, Frank Hackett is explaining how the network's doing well. They've got a top show and that... Uh, you know, if the future planned deals go through, then things are probably just only going to get better. And uh, Mr. Jensen, uh, who is Ned Beatty, he says something that Hackett had almost word for word predicted he would mm -hmm. say to him earlier in the episode. Uh, but he adds the word exemplary. He says, very good, Frank. Exemplary. Keep it up. <laughs> so this is a, this is a proud moment for Frank Hackett. And then we get to see the street, uh, streets of New York. Uh, this is presumably everybody's leaving Mr. Ruddy's funeral. Among these people leaving the funeral are Diana Christensen and Max Schumacher, who had one many splendid night, as she puts it. <laughs> and she she explains that uh, she bumped into Sybil the soothsayer in the elevator last week, and that Diana had asked her why uh, why did nothing further come of her dalliance with the uh, craggy middle-aged man. I doubt that she ever had these conversations with Sybil Soothsayer. <laughs> I think it's just a framing device she came up with to be cute. So Diana asks, are we going to get involved, Max? Max says, yes, I need to become involved very much. He's, he's just kind of, uh, he seems to be going through, he 
midlife crisis type mm -hmm. of thing. Diana says, I was sure you hated me for my part in taking your new show away. He says, I probably did. I don't know anymore. Mm -hmm. From there, we get a montage. Diana is in her office preparing for a weekend off. She even tells one of her assistants that she won't be accessible throughout the weekend, which uh, for somebody, you know, a high-powered executive type, that's a, that's a rare, that's a mm -hmm. rare thing there. <laughs> we see her getting into the taxi with Max, and I'll, I'll describe this, the locations of the montage first, but then I have to provide some information about what's <laughs> going on during all this. She gets into the taxi with Max. Uh, then they're on a nice secluded beach. Uh, it looks like it might be uh, the same beach that was used in Creepshow, actually, although that's just uh, probably a lot of beaches like it out there. Then they go to a romantic restaurant, and then they walk from the romantic restaurant to the motel right next door, and then they get in bed. And through all these scenes, you know, from the from the beginning of the weekend to the consummation of their romance in bed there, uh, Diana just can't shut up. She, uh, she just is constantly talking shop talk, you know, nothing but work related stuff. And it's all the time, whether they're kissing or going to town in bed or, you know, whatever they're, or they're at the romantic restaurant over a bottle of wine, whatever they're doing, she's talking about what's going on at the network, what are, what her plans are for the programming. And uh, this does at least, it, it gives an, a little opportunity for an interesting bit of exposition, which is something that, one of those things that you might, if you didn't think of it during the movie, you might come away afterwards and wonder, well, how did they deal with that? And here we find out that they have a plan for dealing with the FBI that's, the FBI is quite interested in the show because, um, or in the network, because they're producing this Mao Zedong Hour, that is, uh, the documented adventures of domestic terrorists. So, uh, you can see how in that which, could... yeah, In which they need a new terrorist act every week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she explains uh, in some detail how they're, how they're handling it. You know, they're doing it in collaboration with the news division, uh, you know, using the First Amendment and the right to protect their sources. Um, they think they can defend themselves against a misprision of felony charge, but if they try to make it into a series, then they might have to worry about conspiracy and inducement to committed crime. But she's not worried about that either. She says, all they need is six weeks federal litigation, and the Mao Zedong hour can start carrying its own time slot. <laughs> so she, she obviously believes that all publicity is good publicity. <laughs> She ends up in this little sequence. Um, she talks about a soap opera that she's planning on doing. She says, I'm thinking of doing a homosexual soap opera, The Dykes. The heart-rending saga about a woman hopelessly in love with her husband's mistress. <laughs> At the time the movie came out, this still would have been fairly risque, although even in the 70s, you were getting things like Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and uh, soap, and, you know... And even, yeah. you know, we mentioned All in the Family was bringing things like that onto television. Uh, so it's not, I mean, she, she's kind of at the cusp of an era of scandal that's not going to last much longer. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, and this is a few years pre-AIDS, and that, you know, put a spin on everything and kind of sped up all of it. Because, you know, one of the weird results of, of 
AIDS is that a lot of people realize people in their family and such were gay that they didn't know. Uh, mm. But also, I think it's it's a Lumet thing, right? He, uh, we mentioned that in oh, Dog, Dog Day, Day Afternoon, Afternoon they had the yeah. trans character. Earlier in this movie, she very casually mentions that she got divorced after her husband ran off with his boyfriend. And none of oh, these, yeah. you know, I think a, a hallmark of Lumet in this time, which was unusual, is he doesn't, none of these are treated with disrespect. None of these are like a ho-ho-ho, you know. This is, mm-hmm. they're just part of life. And at that time on TV and other things, most shows, even trying to deal with it, they had to put that little bit of like, oh, isn't this weird in there just to give themselves cover. Hmm. Oh, yeah. So she's uh, she's trying to be a pioneer at the very last possible moment, so to speak. <laughs> yep. Yep. But still, uh, she is she is trying to push the boundaries, uh, which... Uh, from the ratings perspective, is uh, exactly what the network wants. So, good for her. <laughs> but, uh, as, as we'll see in the rest of this, uh, in the rest of the movie, um, there is some criticism, perhaps, to be leveled at Diana. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. So, we next go to Max's home after he's returned from his magical weekend. And... He's talking to his wife, who knows what's going on. He he probably told her himself. She says, Louise is his wife's name. She says, do you love her? And he says, <laughs> one, of the, one of the more cruel lines in film, I think. He says, <laughs> I don't know how I feel. I'm grateful I can feel anything. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, and, and, and it's, it's cruel in my thinking because it's obvious that this woman really cares about him. That, like, we we saw a scene earlier when when we found out that Howard Beale had gotten up off the couch and wandered out into the world, um, and she was the one who woke up and found that. But she had, when she got out of bed, she disturbed the the comforter, you know, the the big heavy blanket, and so she she took a moment when she got out of bed to put it back, like tuck it around his neck and shoulders, you know, mm-hmm. make sure that he didn't get a draft or something. So th- there's just, there's a lot of, between that and just the way she generally treats him, there's a lot of reason to think that she really does love this man. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, I'm grateful I can feel anything. Mm-hmm. You know, just, <laughs> that's kind of harsh, but... He's he's hemming and hawing about whether or not he loves her. And she says, don't keep telling me that you're obsessed, that you're infatuated. Say that you're in love with her. He says, I'm in love with her. She says, then get out. <laughs> she says, I'm your wife, damn it. If you can't work up a winter passion for me, the least I respect is respect and allegiance. She starts crying pretty convincingly, I think. And she says, I hurt. Don't you understand that? I hurt badly. And... You know, in some movies this would be where the where the scene would end, but an interesting thing happens here. It actually goes on, and even though there's a lot of emotion and a lot of pain and stuff going on, they still just keep talking like mm-hmm. adults who are, you know, married and old friends and so on. She asks, "Does she love you, Max?" And uh, this is where Max starts revealing that he uh he understands Diana more than we may have thought and and he also uh 
Well, he's doing what he's doing in spite of that understanding. He says, I'm not sure she's capable of any real feelings. She's television generation. She learned life from Bugs Bunny. The only reality she knows comes to her from over the TV set. And uh, he talks about how she thinks of things in terms of scripts. He mentions that she does have one script in which I kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> and, and part and, of the uh, interesting thing here in this whole theme of, you know, he is self-consciously doing something that he knows and his wife is telling him is going to lead to grief, but also that Diana knows. Like, when he says she has all these scripts for how this turns out, I mean, they're all pretty traumatic, right? So, like, mm -hmm. everybody involved in this situation knows this is not going in a good place. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, she doesn't have a script where they live happily ever after. <laughs> Yeah, as you said, Louise uh, mentions you're in for some dreadful grief, Max, and he says, "I know." <laughs> so it, it's it's a very interesting scene because of you know it starts off with all these heightened emotions, and then it kind of reaches reaches a peak when when she breaks down and cries and says she hurts, and then they still go ahead and just keep talking like old friends and spouses. You know, so they're very interesting to me, anyway. That they don't, you know, devolve into a shrieking fest, mm. you know. <laughs> and um, and in a way, it's worse. There's a saying that I think is true, right? And it says that hate is not the opposite of love. Because hate means that mm. you have emotion. It is indifference is the opposite right. of love, right? Um, yeah. And so what you're seeing ever here is, I mean, two people who, who do care for each other, but they're, but at least he is also reaching a point of indifference. And if right. they were yelling and screaming at each other, you would know that they were still in love with each other. Right. It's a pretty memorable scene. And in fact, I believe, I, I didn't actually research this, but I believe the actress here got an Oscar for this, even though it's, you know, basically the only scene where she really does any significant amount of talking. I didn't look into that, so I don't know. But I have to say for... The small part she has in the film, she really projects a full character. Oh, yeah. So after Max acknowledges that he's got some dreadful grief in store, uh, we go back to the farmhouse where the communists are hiding out. And uh, the narrator is one of his brief voiceovers. And uh, he's talking about the, the network making the deal to finalize the Mao Zedong hour. And he, uh, the narrator... Uh, has a little bit of an understatement here. He says, there were the usual contractual difficulties. <laughs> you might expect that the, the suits from the network would be the people who'd be uh, hard noses, but instead it's Lorene Hobbs. Um, she's, she's up in arms about uh, her distribution costs. She's uh, not happy with all the uh, little uh, tacked-on penalties and expenses and so forth that she's going to have to deal with. She says, the Communist Party's not going to see a nickel out of this goddamn show till we go into syndication. <laughs> <laughs> right, which is a sophisticated understanding, because that is actually the way, even up until modern TV, most of these shows work, right? All the people involved, the producers, the, the actors and everything, they don't really make money unless they hit enough episodes, which at least traditionally was 100 episodes, that they go into syndication. And that's when you make your money. And so, oh. you know, everything is about getting to that point. Yeah. There's an interesting <laughs> thing that happened with news radio, which is this just really great comedy show, right? And then 
Oh, that was Phil Hartman, wasn't it? Yeah, and and Phil okay. Hartman played this wacky character in there. And after he died, you know, he was shot by his wife. Right. The crew was so devastated because they all, you know, it's not one of those sets where everybody hated each other. They actually really liked each other. And they oh, were yeah. so devastated, they just wanted to stop. And the producers would not let them stop because they wanted to get to that number of episodes to hit syndication. And if you hmm. watch the couple of episodes they filmed right after he died, the actors are so depressed. <laughs> it is just bizarre because oh, no, you couldn't. It's not one of these cases where you go, well, you'd have no idea that their co-star just got shot. No, you watch it oh. and it is it is really, really hard to watch because these guys are sleepwalking through their scenes, maybe even trying huh. to torpedo them to get the show to be taken off the air. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, wow. kind of a real life it's... case of what we see in this movie. <laughs> huh. That's interesting because I, I never watched news radio, but I, I saw lots and lots of episodes of Saturday Night Live when Phil Hartman was mm-hmm. on that. And he was one of my favorites. You know, I've always liked kind of the uh, straight man type guys like the Dan Aykroyds and, the you know, that the, that sort of guys who played that role on the show. And Phil Hartman was kind of the uh, the all-purpose, I don't know how to put it, He he just... He didn't have a lot of gimmicks. He just was a solid. Yeah. When I found out he had been shot, that was one of the celebrity deaths that I found most depressing. I mean, yeah. I don't typically really get up, up, upset about such things. And I mean, it wasn't like I was sobbing or anything, but I was just <laughs> like kind of in a funk. For I think him and Philip Seymour Hoffman, these were two people you could feel like you knew and you feel like they were going to have this ongoing career that you were going to experience. And mm-hmm. um, I agree. And in fact, and for once I can make the cultural reference, he had this <laughs> bit the on Saturday Night Live, this repeating bit that was perfect for this movie, which was the uh, gay gun-owning communists club. <laughs> Did you ever see that one? Oh, that doesn't ring a bell, no. Yeah, so, you know, he had a talk show and people would call up and they say, well, you know, I'm gay and I'm communist, but I don't own a gun. You know, can I join the club? He's like, sorry, it's the gay communist gun-owning club. <laughs> <laughs> no, that doesn't ring a bell. I mean, <laughs> All right, back to our movie. <laughs> All right, so, so when Lorraine's uh, complaining about her distribution costs, uh, the kidnapped heiress speaks up while well, she screams up. She says, you fucking fascist. <laughs> and she goes on babbling about the seminal prisoner class in- infrastructure. <laughs> and Lorraine replies, you can blow the seminal prisoner class infrastructure out your ass. I'm not knocking down my goddamn distribution charges. <laughs> and then the great Ahmed Khan Fires a pistol into the ceiling, <laughs> which gets everybody's attention. It says, man, give her the fucking overhead clause. <laughs> so he, uh, he did, he did settle that, uh, quite well. And then they, then they go on into reading through the, it's, it's funny because after that, you know, everybody's alarmed from the pistol shot. And then they all settle down and go into reading the next paragraph of the contract. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So next we see the UBS Affiliates Conference, 1976. And um, for some reason, um, I mean, it's really, it's it's kind of a generic setting. It's a big, big hotel ballroom that they've rented out for the occasion. 
Um, it just it reminds me of the human power elite scene from They Live, uh, you know, where the aliens are, are congratulating the humans on the great work they've done and, and you know, cooperating <laughs> with them and, and uh, you know, thereby contributing to their own success. It's it's kind of that. These are all the all the affiliates from Cleveland and Albuquerque and everywhere else who <laughs> who are, you know, the local UBS stations who have come here uh, to be wined and dined for an evening, and uh, <clears throat> Diana Christensen uh, gets a gets a very flattering introduction uh, from one of the network executives, and she gets up there and she says, "We've got the number one show on television." At next year's Phillies meeting, I'll be here telling you we've got the top five. <laughs> and she mentions that right now people here in Los Angeles are switching to Channel 3 to watch Howard Beale. Uh, and that's a little bit of uh, brief foreshadowing of the next scene. Because as she's cheerleading, uh, an aide comes up to the dais and calls Frank Hackett away. He's got a phone call. So we see him go into the hotel bar. Excuse me. And on the on the bar counter, there's a television set, and it's showing Howard Beale just just beginning his program. Uh, and Howard Beale uh, has a little bit of a bee in his bonnet. He's uh, <laughs> he's concerned about uh, who might be buying CCA, the owners of of UBS, um, and he can reveal that. They're buying it for the Saudi Arabian Investment Corporation. You know, it's sort of a go-between company that's doing the buying, but they're buying it for the Arabs. Hackett is on the phone with New York, and he's saying, you guys get it three hours earlier in New York. How the hell could I see it? It's just going on now. So it's on a, it's on a tape delay, Beale's program is, so he's just finding out what's happening now. And... uh he checks out the television on the bar counter. Howard is saying, Right now the Arabs have screwed us out of enough American dollars to come right back and with our own money <laughs> buy General Motors, IBM, ITT, AT&T, DuPont, U.S. Steel, and 20 other American companies. And this is another example between, between this list of companies and uh, the you're on television dummy. Yeah, we'll find out soon enough. Mr. Jensen, who's in charge of it all, he's uh he's been keeping track of what Beale says. You know, he's he's going to cite the man's own words back at him eventually. And uh <laughs> but we'll we'll get to that. But this little list of companies is just another thing that ends up getting echoed back to Howard Beale uh, shortly enough. So Beale says, I want you to get up from your chairs, go to the phone, get in your cars, drive into the Western Union offices in town. Uh, this was when you still could send telegrams to the White <laughs> House, and that's what he wants the viewers to do. And then he leads them in a chant. He says, come on, I want the CCA deal stopped now. I want the CCA deal stopped now. And then he does his trademark fainting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and to me, and this touches on something that Nick has in our discussion, which is that we started out with this general, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore, and the audience going for that. Now it's this very specific, we're against this particular corporate deal because Howard Beale told us to be against it. Like, in a way, I think you see already the corruption even of Howard Beale and all this where 
nobody cares about this deal, right? I mean, nobody, mm-hmm. you know, they're only repeating this back to him because they are being sheep in this case, in, mm-hmm. the, in the context of the movie. Yeah. Although, although they do probably resent, you know, knowing that it's Arabs who are buying <laughs> up uh, the company, they probably do resent the, uh, the gas prices at the time. <laughs> That's uh, true. Right. Wait a few and, years and, and also, it'll be the Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, they uh, they probably understand that in seeing this, well, not all of them, but some of them at least, probably understand that in taking this stand, Beale is, is actually at odds against the very network that is paying yeah. him to be on the air. So that they're probably just having a good old time with it, those who actually <laughs> yeah, are paying attention at all. Yeah. So then we see, it, I'm not sure what room this is. It may be the control booth for the ballroom, you know, like wherever they control the audio. It's got some monitors and, you know, various gadgetry in it. But the executives, including Hackett and Diana, they're gathered in this little room. Hackett confirms that what Beale said about this CCA deal is true. He says, we need that Saudi money bad. Disaster. The show is a disaster. He's concerned that Beale has screwed everything up. He says, Four hours ago, I was a sun god at CCA. Mr. <laughs> Jensen's hand-picked golden boy, the heir apparent. Now, I'm a man without a corporation. <laughs> <laughs> so, it turns out, as we may expect, that Mr. Jensen is unhappy with Howard Beale and wants him discontinued. That's what Frank says. Diana replies... He isn't stupid enough to withdraw the number one show on television out of peak. And Hackett, <laughs> Hackett uh, uh, has a little outburst. He says, two billion dollars isn't peak. That's the <laughs> wrath of God. <laughs> so he gets the phone call he's expecting, Mr. Hackett does. And sure enough, he's to go to New York, or he's returning to New York anyway, but he's supposed to show up in the offices tomorrow morning. And moreover, Mr. Jensen wants to meet Howard Burrow, Pe- Howard Beale personally, he says. He wants Mr. Beale in his office at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. And in the corporate headquarters, we see uh, Beale and Hackett walking together up the steps. It's a great ornate marble staircase, you know, looking very classy. And, and Beale is really in top form this morning. He's shouting about all his... Yeah, prophetic gifts and so on, and saying, <laughs> I bear witness to the light. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, to I, I would say in terms of the mental illness meter, at this point, he just seems off his rocker. I mean, because previously, <laughs> we would see that in normal life, he would act normally. And then when he was on the show, he would kind of go crazy. Now he's just going crazy as he's walking around. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and when he gets to Mr. Jensen's office... Jensen introduces himself and says, Good morning, Mr. Beale. They tell me you're a madman. Howard replies <laughs> only desultorily. How are you now? I'm as mad as a hatter. Who isn't? <laughs> so Mr. Jensen's taking it in stride. <laughs> he says, I started as a salesman, Mr. Beale. They say I can sell anything. I'd like to try to sell something to you. He takes Beale to the boardroom, and it's a it's a it's a comfortable looking room, uh, a long table as boardrooms are tend to have, uh, and it's got a whole bunch of green green shaded bankers lamps. You know, they're a little about a foot high. They have a long rectangular shade over the 
delight. And each seat at that table has one of those. And then the room itself has wall sconces and chandeliers, so there are various light sources, white and green ones. This It's just visually kind of a neat scene. And it, when they get in there, the curtains are open, so there's sunlight coming in. But Mr. Jensen shuts those, so the only light is from the banker's lamps and the chandeliers and wall sconces. He begins letting Mr. Beale have it. He says that, You've meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. This is a pretty famous speech, too. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, I'm i not going to go through every line of it, but there are, there are a couple quotable quotes. Uh, his, he, he says, The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. He says, you are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There's only one holistic system of systems, one vast, domaine, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And this is where he, uh, he brings back that list of companies that, that Beale had rattled off the other day. He says, uh, you get up on your little 21-inch screen and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide, and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. As we discussed earlier, that you know, about half of those don't even exist anymore, <laughs> at least not under those names. Right. So, uh... A little irony there. Uh, Jensen says, what do you think the Russians talk about in their councils of state? Karl Marx? They get out their linear programming charts, statistical decision theories, mini-max solutions, and compute the price, cost, probabilities of their transactions and investments, just like we do. <laughs> he started off talking about corporations, and and he still is... But now he's getting to the point where why is, it, in his opinion, why is it a good thing that these corporations are the government of the world today, effectively? Mm-hmm. He says, And our children will live, Mr. Beale, to see that perfect world in which there's <laughs> no war or famine, oppression or brutality. One vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit in which all men will hold a share of stock, all, necessi- all necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized, all boredom amused. And I have chosen you, Mr. Beale, to preach this evangel. And Beale says, why me? And this is, again, <laughs> you know, where, where uh, Jensen takes advantage of the fact that he's been paying attention. Uh, he says, because you're on television, dummy. <laughs> Sixty million people watch you every night of the week, Monday through Friday. And at this point, Howard Beale seems rather odd. You know, he's been sitting at this long boardroom table just listening as Jensen makes his presentation, and he he does it much more dramatically and skillfully than I (laughs) recited (laughs) these lines here. So Beale looks kind of awestruck, and he says, I have seen the face of God. (laughs) Jensen says, you just might be right, Mr. Beale. (laughs) And the next scene is the Beale Show going on the air again, and the narrator tells us that that evening Howard Beale went on the air to preach the corporate cosmology of Arthur Jensen. 
Yeah, this Beal takes a different tone this time. He starts off very upbeat. He's praising the audience for their role in stopping the CCA buyout by the Arabs. Uh, he says it was a radiant eruption of democracy. But I think that was it, fellas. That sort of thing is not likely to happen again. Because at the bottom of all our terrified souls, we know that democracy is a dying giant, a sick, sick, dying, decayed political concept writhing in its final pain. I don't mean that the United States is finished as a world power. What is finished is the idea that this great country is dedicated to the freedom and flourishing of every individual in it. It's the individual that's finished. It's the single, solitary human being that's finished. It's every single one of you out there that's finished. And that's a real long quote. The reason I, I, I included such a long quote is because for me, the thing that's most interesting about the movie, as far as the grand philosophy of it, isn't so much the relationship between corporations and governments as what is it that makes citizens people instead of humanoids you know mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's the interesting issue to me and beale goes on to say the people in the world to come are going to be totally unnecessary as human beings and as replaceable as piston rods mm -hmm. and then he says well the time has come to say is dehumanization such a bad word <laughs> because good or bad that's what is so the whole world is becoming humanoid, creatures that look human but aren't. We're just the most advanced country, so we're getting there first. <laughs> <laughs> and again, another reference sort of to They Live, which uh, I'll insert the editor's note here, if you don't know already, is, is <laughs> on the list of films we'll be watching as part of Rage Against the Machines. <laughs> oh, good deal. All right, a little, uh, little cross-pollination there. Very good. <laughs> and then the, uh, the narrator says, it was a perfectly admissible argument that Howard Beale advanced in the days that followed. It was, however, also a very depressing one. <laughs> Nobody particularly cared to hear his life was utterly valueless. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so from that Howard Beale show, and, uh, and I think, I don't think we see him collapse in this one. Hmm. I, I, yeah, I don't well, recall for I, sure. That's a good point, because I think that ties to the fact that Suddenly he's moving from his, you know, messianic phase to a lecturing phase. And and so it's a little mm -hmm. less dramatic, right? Mm -hmm. So we see Diana's apartment. She's on the phone and whoever she's talking to is someone named Lou, I think. She's very upset about Howard Beale's ratings. And she's works throughout the call. She works her way up to actually just yelling. Max enters her apartment as she's finishing this call. Max is feeling down, and uh, they have, they have a long conversation here. But I'm I'm not going to go all through it. it. It boils down to Max is feeling both depressed and also also guilty. He says, "I went to w visit my wife today because she's in a state of depression, so depressed that my daughter flew all the way from Seattle to be with her, and I feel lousy about that." I feel lousy about the pain that I've caused my wife and kids. I feel guilty and conscience-stricken, and all of those things that you think sentimental, but which my generation calls simple human decency. <laughs> and we, we find out that he is getting a taste of his own medicine. All the pain that he has inflicted on his wife. Well, not all of it, but, but some 
percentage of it. He's, he's starting to fail himself. He, mm. he appeals to Diana's nobler nature and says, I just want you to love me. Primal doubts and all. He, he, he had said that he, she's looking at a man who has primal doubts. So now he's saying, I just want you to love me. Primal doubts and all. You understand that, don't you? And she says, which is, a, it's, it, it shows a surprising amount of self-awareness. She says, I don't know how to do that. So that's not the end of the relationship, but it could be the beginning of the mm-hmm. end. <laughs> and then we go from Diana's apartment to Diana's office. And Diana's on the phone with somebody again, and she's in yelling mode more or less again. But now Laureen Hobbs is there, and Laureen is yelling at her while she's on the phone. So uh, it's a brief but emotional scene. After Diana hangs up, she explains to Laureen that she's going to look at audition footage right now because Laureen does not want to follow the Howard Howard Beale show. It's ratings poison now. <laughs> so Diane is going to look at audition footage for a new uh, a new prophet, a new mad prophet of the mm-hmm. airwaves. So in the screening room, we see a. Uh, a film that's kind of a grainy, I don't know what it was, eight millimeter, whatever the home cameras used to use, one of those type of things. It's this man in a robe standing on a cliff out in the woods, and he's talking about how he opened the sixth seal. <laughs> and he says, And man, I tell you, I saw it. It was heavy, <laughs> baby. <laughs> and uh, they have a few other prophets that they plan to review and evaluate, but this guy is supposed to be the best of the <laughs> lot. And he's just hes just not that great. And Diana says, fully-fledged messiahs don't come in bunches. We either go with Howard Beale or we go without him. I think we should fire Howard. And Frank Hackett is there, and he has, he's followed Diana's advice a lot throughout the movie, but now... He, uh, there's a higher power involved. He says, Arthur Jensen has taken a strong personal interest in the Howard Beale show. <laughs> but we find out that Frank Hackett is going to meet Mr. Jensen for dinner. So these people will regroup in Hackett's office at 10 p.m. <laughs> after that meeting. So while he's off having his dinner, uh, Diana uh, goes back to her apartment and she tells Max that it's time to reevaluate their relationship. And they do they do a lot of talking here, and, and a lot of it is uh, memorable stuff, but I'm not going to, you know, rattle it all off. The, one of my favorite quotes from the movie is in this scene where she talks about Max's rather serene lovemaking. <laughs> and Max says, Why is it that a woman always thinks the most savage thing she can say to a man is to impugn his coxmanship? <laughs> they talk for a while about how their things aren't going well. And Max says at one point, he says, I love you. And that painful, decaying love is the only thing between you and the shrieking nothingness you live the rest <laughs> of the day. She says, then don't leave me. And uh, she says in a convincingly scared tone of voice, but he says, it's too late, Diana. There's nothing left in you that I can live with. You're one of Howard's humanoids. If I stay with you, I'll be destroyed. <laughs> and then another one of my favorite quotes, uh, which uh, I uh, I almost wish I, I could use it on somebody one day, but on the <laughs> other hand, I really don't. 
He says, your madness, Diana, virulent madness, and everything you touch dies with you. But not me, not as long as I can feel pleasure and pain and love. <laughs> so it's a, it's a neat scene. It's a good, uh, good breakup scene, I guess, hey. if you go in for all that romance kind of stuff. He has a fun little, uh, fun little conclusion, you know, where he, he compares the, their last moments of the relationship to a, uh, the ending of a television show. You know, <laughs> yeah. I feel good. like he, he, if anything was kind of the shallow one here. I mean, we never see a reason for him to get with her other than that she's younger you know, and, and says that she was sort of infatuated with him as a college student. I mean, there's, you know. He never shows any particular interest in her talking about office politics all the time. You know, th there's no basis for this relationship. And so I think he was being pretty shallow in the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not clear beyond, uh, beyond the sex appeal. Uh, I mean, she is, she can be very charming and funny. Uh, I mean, she, she has several qualities that could be attractive, but... Uh, but, but yeah, it's not clear what exactly the elements are in the package that really, really dragged him in. Probably just the desire for one, one final mm -hmm. wacky fling. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was not a, uh, not a deep and I think what he, what he calls to what he had was with his wife, he called it a sustaining love, something like mm. that. So it wasn't that. <laughs> so now the 10 p.m. meeting at Hackett's office. Frank's been to dinner with Mr. Jensen, and things didn't go as he'd hoped. He thinks Mr. Jensen, Frank says, he thinks Howard Beale is bringing a very important message to the American people, which is, of course, the message that Mr. Jensen gave Howard Beale. <laughs> so he would think that. Mr. Jensen said he did not like volatile industries, namely television and suggested with a certain sinister silkiness that volatility in business usually reflected bad management. <laughs> and uh, Frank goes on to say he didn't really care if Howard Beale was the number one show on television or the 50th. Mm -hmm. So this is basically, it's basically just the situation that the network news was in from the start, where, uh, you know, it's... Uh, if it doesn't make money, well, that's the news. Yeah. <laughs> Except now there's just a different motivation for it. Still the same deal. Diana points out that the other segments, like Sybil the Soothsayer and Vox Populi and so on, they all have their own audiences now. Their studies show that it's just Howard that's killing the show here. So Frank Hackett finally says, I suppose we'll have to kill him. Uh, and he says it very casually. It's not clear if he's just joking about it or not. He says, I don't suppose you have any ideas on that, Diana. And she uh, says she thinks she can get the people from the Mao Tung Hour to kill Howard for them as one of their shows. <laughs> and when she says that, we start seeing, we'll still see some more views of the people gathered in the office here. But we're also going to be intercutting to scenes of the audience lining up to get into the studio for the Howard Beale show. The executives are discuss this some more, the idea of killing him. They're quite calm about it, and they 
discuss the legal details of Beale's contract. You know, what if they have to buy out the contract and so forth. And finally, Frank says, well, the issue is, shall we kill Howard Beale or not? I'd like to hear some more opinions on that. Diana says, I don't see we have any option, Frank. Let's kill the son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, so I got to say, has, I spent my, mm-hmm. you know, career in corporate life. And, and I think that someone like Patachevsky kind of imagines that this is what people at the, you know, pinnacle of, of corporations uh, talk about. But, it, you know, it's <laughs> not. I mean, people are people and they're human and most of them want to do the right thing, et cetera. So I'll just, I'll oh, just yeah. put up my little defense for, for corporate America. I think that the the casualness with which it is treated here is, is part of the satire, but it's it's not what yeah. I've seen in reality. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if it was just Frank and Diana in the room, I could buy that easier, I guess. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, well, but in with, fact, uh, I think Frank had four or five people in there. Yeah, and Frank oh, sounds like he and Frank sounds like he wants to get even more people involved in decision making. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'd like to hear some more opinions on that. <laughs> yeah, that's. No, uh, yeah. If you're if you're doing something secret, uh, do it secret. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So then we uh, we see in the studio, we, we we actually get a reprise of the whole introduction we saw earlier from the audience saying, I'm mad as hell, introducing all the Sybil and the MS Truth Department and so on. You know, it just goes through the same introduction we saw over and over. But this time, as soon as Howard Beale finally steps out, he takes his position at center stage and as soon as the audience applause dies off, two men in the audience stand up and they shoot him multiple times. And he he's fallen down again, but this time it wasn't under his own steam. This time it was from the bullets. And then we see four television screens, uh, which is how the whole thing started. Some of them are showing an anchor man, some of them are showing commercials, and some of them are showing footage of the assassination. And this uh, this goes on. It 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 it's not just a brief thing. It probably goes on for a minute or two. I didn't time it, but it it, it goes on for a while. And finally, after the anchor men have made their comments on the, you know, the great Ahmed Khan was believed to be in the audience and escaped and so on, the narrator says the last uh, last line of the movie. Uh, this was the story of Howard Beale. The first known instance of a man who was killed because he had lousy ratings. <laughs> and uh, the credits start up, and even even three of the four television screens vanish to make room for the credits. But the one on the lower left stays throughout the whole credits sequence, and that's the one that's showing Beale's face and his chest as he's lying dead on the floor. And that's the show. <laughs> okay. Back to our discussion with Nick. <laughs> so, Nick, when you're busy shaking your fist at the sky, it's like no time has passed at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, uh, I'm i the new one to this. Actually, I, I didn't even realize it. Um, this is one of those cases. We've, we've ran into this a couple times. Uh, Altered States, I think, was too for both Guy and I, where I could swear I'd seen the film because when I was growing up, mm. I saw so many things from it. And of course the famous speech in the middle of it, but it turns out I, I have not seen the film. <laughs> so You may have read the mad magazine parody <laughs> um, uh, at some point. Cause uh, I know with, 
a lot of movies from the 70s where I'm, I'm not right. quite uh, old enough to, uh, to have seen them in the theater. But I like in the 80s, uh, my father retired the year I graduated college in 1985 and we got him a VCR and I spent a summer. Uh, my father was born in 1923. And we spent the summer watching movies and we would watch like a movie he had watched as a kid. And then like an R-rated movie I had always wanted to watch, but wasn't <laughs> old enough to. And uh, it was amazing to me, like how many of those movies I was like, God, I thought I saw this. And it was, I realized at a certain point it was because I had read the Mad Magazine parody, which were <laughs> brilliant right, right. in both depicting what the movie was about and then offering a kind of critique of it. But like they, they never missed a big point. Right. Yeah, I uh, I read a lot of Mad Magazine and, and Cracked, for that matter, right, uh, yeah. in, in my day. <laughs> well, the surprise to me then coming to it fresh is that what we think of as the film is really only like a third of the film. You know, it's it's yeah. the third that everyone knows is the Howard Beale media, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to take I'm it anymore. I'm mad as hell and I'm not yeah. going to take it. Yeah. You know, but then we have this a lot of time spent on kind of middle age crises mm -hmm. and then another third is kind of how the corporate world works so and if anything i almost I, I both respect that they're trying to get all that in there but a criticism of mine would be kind of like pick your story because this is two hours long you could have cut half an hour out of that and had a more oh, Ron, concise you, you don't story. understand <laughs> what life was like in the 70s yeah. you know we didn't <laughs> where were you going you know like and, and especially i mean i think for me, I, and I agree with you because I, I, you know, I watched this a couple of days ago in anticipation of this and I had too had forgotten a lot of that. And one of the things I was thinking about a lot was that, you know, the, the part of the backstory is that uh, the William Holden character and the Peter Finch character, Beale, they are guys from the original TV news club. You know, they mm -hmm. work with Murrow and with Eric Severide and all, you know, these great, you know, people from the 50s when news was real. And they're talking about a period that's only 20 years before this movie. Um, mm -hmm. But there's such an intense nostalgia. Yeah. And that, that, you know, this movie is coming at a time when, like, the World War II generation. And I think of William Holden, who I think was born in the early 20s uh, or mid-20s. And, you know, made his bones in, like, Stalag 17, where he's, you know, the, the model for what became Colonel Hogan and Hogan's right. Heroes. And he's this, you know, battle-weary old guy. But he's only middle-aged. But that his world is completely ending, uh, you know, and that's a big theme that like kind of, and Chayefsky, of course, the screenwriter also served in World War II. And he is, you know, he's recognizing that the medium that made him famous television is slipping into something he doesn't quite recognize and he doesn't like. And it's hard to disentangle how much of that is just kind of middle age angst, how much of it is a generational angst, uh, you know, where the greatest generation is absolutely giving way, not to the hippie counterculture, but the hip, the counterculture, the, you know, the baby boom, as it becomes the, the center of corporate America and of administrative jobs, et cetera. I think there's a lot. And then there is that overlay, uh, which I find particularly, you know, again, compelling and interesting as a historical thing, but utterly unconvincing. The idea that corporate America now is running everything. And Thinking, watching this movie, it reminded me a lot of the Parallax View, which came out around the same time, the Alan Pakula <laughs> movie about, uh, you know, corporate assassins, where it's not just our, you know, shadow governments running everything, but it's a corporation ultimately, not even, not even a foreign power. Right. Um, right. So that corporate mm -hmm. fear, because of course the Saudis end up 
you know, behind everything at a time where they're squeezing us for oil and whatnot. <laughs> it's funny to see that, but that must have been a wave before the Japanese were owning yeah, everything. Yeah, it, it was it was about <laughs> five or ten years before we. Yeah, the the same movie then gets made, but it's the Japanese. You know, that's Black Rain, and uh, right. oh God, there was the other one, uh, like not something rising. Uh, so it seems though the obvious counter to that is to say, well, you know, Disney and company do own everything and put out yeah. every film now and own every network, right? Uh, well, you know, one thing that's interesting is that at this point, Disney was being used because Disney was in, you know, like a week away from Chapter 11. Right. Um, and Disney was being used at the same time as a model that America was failing um, because, you know, Disney had been the greatest culture producer in the world. And like they hadn't had they were like the New York Yankees, another sign of decline. You know, the, the Yankees won a World Series or, you know, they had a good season in 1966. They were about to have a good one in 76, but they had faded. Disney hadn't had a hit in, you know, in a, in a couple of decades, they, you know, and, mm -hmm. um, uh, one counter to that kind of corporate thing is that you often see, I think fears of a threat that are impregnable to any kind of assault, those ramp up at the exact moment that that world is failing. And so to go to the Japanese model, like people were freaking out about the Japanese in the very late eighties and early nineties at the exact mm -hmm. moment that the Japanese had to sell back Rockefeller center to American buyers at a massive loss and then entered what was called the lost decade that has been going on for like 35 years. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think something similar here is going on because it's true that Disney is back. Disney owns everything. Disney owns our dreamscape, right? Because they, they not only own Star Wars, but they own Marvel Comics, plus <laughs> a re a rejuvenated Disney products as well as Pixar. You know, they're like everywhere. And yet for Disney to kind of be all things to all people, they are no longer Disney. And I remember actually writing about this in the early, yeah. I guess, in the mid nineties for reason, uh, you know, Disney had to buy Miramax and Miramax was the anti-Disney, uh, you know, they yeah. were putting out movies like Pulp Fiction. Uh, they mm. were putting out movies about priests who were not celibate so that recognizing that corporations are not necessarily the question. It's does the audience have the ability to go elsewhere? So mm -hmm. Disney, uh, and I don't think Disney is an overwhelming force for good or evil, but for Disney or any corporation, say Amazon, to mm -hmm. really command market share and to keep growing, they are much more subservient to their audience. Mm -hmm. then, you know, then they are just pushing crap on people. I saw that we're working at Apple, you know, that was where my career was. And mm -hmm. especially once we released the phone, you know, we just wanted to put out this phone and control the apps on it and have a few apps and, you know, et cetera. And first of all, the world went crazy for their own apps, which Steve did right. not want. But once he realized that someone else was going to put out a phone that allowed people to have their own apps and that we were going to lose business, he turned on a dime. Then mm -hmm. we had to become one of the best map companies in the world. They screwed up that up, up front. Right. Then you had to become the best camera company in the world. And it was not because Apple wanted to be a map company or Apple wanted mm -hmm. to be a camera company. It was because if they didn't give our customers what they wanted, they were going to go to someone else's phone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I always thought that was really interesting. Also, there's a thing called Apple university and many people it's been written about, it's a little secret, and many people have misunderstood it as being something that's supposed to teach Steve Jobs' ethos to the company. But in reality, a lot of their purpose is to work with the ex executives 
And to keep looking at the ways other large businesses failed historically hmm. and to say, and this gets to what you were saying, Nick, part of their mantra was whatever's going to kill us is already happening. Right. And we don't know it. And we have to be constantly vigilant to figure out what it is that that's going to cause us to, to fail. So this is kind of like the Andy Grove mantra of only yeah. the paranoid survive, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think about this in, in a cruder kind of corporate terms, a company like McDonald's uh, or, you know, AOL is a good example. When the AOL Time Warner merger was announced in the late 90s, uh, you know, everybody was like, my God, this is the ultimate endpoint of, you know, corporate control of media. And you have Time Warner, the mighty Time Warner and AOL, which at that time was by far and away the largest ISP, uh, you know, in a dial up era. And, you know, what happened at the end of that was like AOL kind of, AOL exists as kind of like the Space Jam website of, of you know, of tech, right? right? Where it's still around, but it's like, eh, it's not clear what it does anymore. And Time Warner, it doesn't exist anymore. It's changed into a bunch of different, you know, companies and they sold off their magazines and, you know, they're doing this and that. And McDonald's is an interesting kind of corporate beast in this sense. And, and I think it speaks to some of the fears or, or understanding its corporate history helps allay some of the fears of media concentration of ownership and things like that is that the way McDonald's kind of maintains, you know, 60% of all uh, prepared food meals that are sold in the country or something is by radically altering what their offerings are, you know, and now, you know, they had to go from being a takeout place to being a sit down place, being open for breakfast, uh, you know, eventually giving kids free toys and free refills on, you know, soda, uh, then, you know, upping, you know, their nominal prices don't increase very often. Uh, you know, much less adjusted for inflation and they give you bigger stuff and more stuff and, you know, bowl rooms for the kids to play in and everything. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that if a company is sticking around for a long time, it's usually because it's changing to uh, anticipate or to serve radically altered um, uh, consumer demand. The, the corporate ethos is kind of like the Catholic church. And I was raised Catholic and I think about this a lot. You know, the Catholic Church will say, oh, we are exactly the same organization we were when Peter, you know, St. Peter founded us, you know, a couple of years after Christ was crucified. And it's like, it's not that at all. They, they tell the story of apostolic succession and that, now this is the same thing, but it's radically different. So like you have mm -hmm. that continuity, but it's kind of a myth. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's true of corporate powers that stick around for, you know, more than 50 years or, you know, something like a hundred years. And you know, at I, at the end of network, there's that whole, you know, the speech where it's like, oh, you know, your corporate paymasters, uh, you know, and they're talking about companies like Union Corp, Carbide, General Motors, et cetera, that, you know, will never perish from the earth. But it's like, no, this is exactly when international kind of vertically integrated corporations were starting to break down, you know, and I, I think my father worked for a shipping company that was owned at the time by R.J. Reynolds. And they were in a constant, you know, they, as soon as they got big and they were this multi-level conglomerate, right at the moment that they were kind of at their peak when they merged with RJ or Nabisco, you know, 10 years after, less than 10 years after Network came out, that was the beginning of the end for them. And, you know, Philip Morris, you know, they're not really a tobacco company anymore, right? They're, and they're not even called Philip Morris. So if you stick around, you're changing radically because corporate power is not 
as firm as we think it is. Yeah, although, I mean, a given corporation may not maintain its power over time, but there's always something new to fill the vacuum. Mm. Is, is it that the movie got it wrong, or, or did it just not present the fact that there's going to be some churn going on all the time? Yeah, that's a good question. And I mean, clearly they don't recognize churn. I mean, it's kind of quaint that in the, in the network universe, you know, there are four networks. There were four national <laughs> networks, which mm. there weren't at the time. There were three. There had been briefly in the 50s, there had been the Dumont network. So there were four TV, national TV channels. And then, you know, by the end of the 80s, there were four again because Fox had joined. Although, interestingly, Fox over the air broadcast didn't, you know, and I don't think it still does have a news division. That was one of the uh, kind of improvements that Rupert Murdoch, who was, you know, mostly a newspaper guy, that was one of the innovations he came up with, which is that, like, you, you can be a broadcast network and not have a news program. Mm. Uh, like a daily news program like CBS, ABC, and NBC. But... They definitely didn't address the churn thing. I think the larger question, and this is both what I think is still relevant about network and kind of what it gets wrong, is its depiction of why do people watch TV or what do they watch on TV? And I think, uh, Guy, to your point, the, the critique of the audience here is actually more front and center than the critique of the corporate news gathering business. Mm -hmm. And... The, uh, interestingly, the audience doesn't speak in this movie. They don't really exist other than as like kind of clapping and barking seals in a studio audience. Right. And um, what people watch now is so radically different in the sense that first off, like network, you know, broadcast shows, you know, they are still, you know, massively more popular than anything that's on cable, but you, you know, bestsellers in any industry, whether you're talking about TV or movies or books or music, the markets, the audiences for goods are so much more niche than they've ever been because right. technologically, and I think culturally, we kind of demanded to have more and better choices that are closer to what we are. The whole idea of mass media is quite different than it was at, a, at a, the point that network was being made, where it was like, no, you, you know, four channels, man, that would be great. That would be like a 33% <laughs> increase right, or something in what we have, right, right. um, you know, wow, yeah. that's like almost doubling, you know, and, and it's like, Fox no, no, well, yeah. <laughs> what we want, what we want are an infinite number of channels. And I think we're oh, sure. getting there, you know, and that to me, that's for me, I think the thing that rubs me wrong the most about network is that there's just a presumption and there's a Seinfeld line. You know, in uh, Seinfeld, when George uh, Costanza and Jerry Seinfeld are pitching to N NBC, the show within a show, and uh, at one point the uh, the NBC executive says to them, like, well, why would anyone watch this? Because Je George says this is a show about nothing. Nothing happens. And the executive says to them, why would anybody watch this? And he says, because it's on TV. <laughs> you know? And it's like, yeah, it turns out that people have turned off their TVs, right? They really have said, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it. And they <laughs> oh, yeah. spend more and more time listening to podcasts, watching videos, <laughs> oh, uh, you sure. know, creating their own content or whatever. And that's, and that's a world that network cannot even conceive of, you know, where yeah. people are like, I'm out. And I think even, uh, well, this was 1976 and 
As I remember it, even by the end of the 1970s, early 80s, uh, a lot of people were starting to get cable television, right. which gave them a whole bunch more choices. And then, of course, in the mid-90s, <laughs> people started getting on the internet in, in earnest, you know, and that just, you know, so, so it was a very shortly after the movie was made, the world changed radically as far as how much variety you had access yeah. to. Yeah. The way I remember it growing up, cause that's, you know, that whole period of cable and the different networks and whether you could afford to pay for them and all this was there. Yeah. And they kind of started out where network is, uh, you know, saying things are going, which is in order to get you to be willing to pay for it they had you know topless women you know and mm -hmm. there was yeah i remember it was at cinemax there was one show at one point some at always would, a woman would take off her top etc yeah, and then they got serious yeah hbo had a, <laughs> an early series called the hitcher and it was like the twilight zone or something but it was about a hitchhiker who would wander from town to town but the main point of the show is that half hour you know, episode, different setting, different cast all the time. But there was always one moment where a bare breast would appear <laughs> almost, you know, almost like Zardoz or something. It would just kind of levitate down from the heavens. <laughs> and I remember watching that, I guess I was in college or shortly after And my, you know, we would watch it just to try like within the first five minutes to see, okay, how are they going to work a, a bare breast into this show? Because it was always extraneous to the plot. Right, right. So you could never tell. It was like Jesus coming, you know, it's a thief in the night. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that the movie is referencing is kind of the end of what's supposed to be a golden age, right? Where you had mm -hmm. the three networks and you had, yeah. and you always hear this, right? We, we had, um, Walter, um, Cronkite. Not Mondale, Cronkite. Yes, Walter yeah. Cronkite, you know, telling us the truth and telling right. us as it was. That's and the when, way it is. When yeah. he decided that the Vietnam War was over, it was over. Yeah. Which, what, can, can what I just think point out, that? by yeah. the way, that, so that specific trope uh, is a complete lie. There's a great website that's run by a guy named uh, Joseph W. Campbell, and he wrote a couple books about this called Media Myths. And he goes through all sorts of famous you know, media myths that are, that persist because they serve somebody's purpose, usually the, the media, uh, and mm. that whole idea that Walter Cronkite, you know, that first it's, it's absolutely untrue that LBJ could have watched that show when it was aired, um, because of like, it, it, you know, he checked his diary and stuff like that. He was not watching Walter Cronkite, but he supposedly famously said after Cronkite called it a quagmire that, uh, you know, he's like, man, we've lost Cronkite. We've lost the war. Absolutely untrue. Television, you know, everybody like, you know, television always wants to talk about itself as the motive force in post-war American history. Mm -hmm. um, and again, in the mid seventies, and this, I was also thinking about this in the context of Saturday Night Live, which started, I think in 75. So it's relatively new. The early cast members, I read a fantastic interview with, um, uh, Lorraine Newman, who was one of the original cast members, and mm -hmm. she talked about how all of the people, you know, and these were boomers. These are like people born in the, mostly in the late forties, maybe early fifties, but they were the first TV generation. The way we talk about millennial, late millennials or Gen Z as like the first digitally native group. Mm. And so they grew up watching TV, the TV babysat them. And that's why early Saturday Night Live stuff, a lot of the jokes don't land anymore because they're about things from 50s tv culture like howdy doody or even mm -hmm. i love lucy and you know all of you know and and weird ads and stuff like it you know flash gordon i mean star wars 
George Lucas tried to buy the rights to, uh, to Flash Gordon right, and couldn't right. get them. So he created because he saw them on TV as a kid. And this is important because this is kind of a nostalgia piece for a world that was falling apart. And it gets retold as this golden age of like, God, you know, these CBS guys and starting on the radio and then on TV where the news programs were 15 minutes long. There was no in-depth news. This was not mm -hmm. good news or anything like that. And a lot of it was the worst. Like if you go back and look at the 50s news, uh, kind of that network kind of valorizes or the William Holden character is, is a stand-in for that. It was terrible. It's like, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's worse than the shit that you see on cable. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very perfunctory. It's very superficial. And it's all coming from a consensus viewpoint, um, mm. from a, a mainstream viewpoint, which is in a lot of ways. And, and, you know, what the seventies was about, I think. Uh, and again, I, I mean, I was growing up during the seventies, but I, you know, I'm not part of like the swinging seventies. I was a kid. But it was mm -hmm. the end of the mainstream in American culture, the beginning of the end, where people were starting to assert individualism. You know, what Tom Wolfe called the me decade was a decade where, uh, you know, plumbers started dressing like, you know, bankers and like, you couldn't tell the difference anymore. And everybody was asserting their right to live however the fuck they wanted, you know, feminists and gay liberation. And, you know, mass, mass media is the first casualty of that. And so in right. a weird way, network is, as, as opposed to being prophetic, although I think we should talk about some of the specific types of characters who persist very much into the current day, but it's actually a valediction of, of a world that is ending as opposed to a prediction of what comes next. Hmm. Also, um, I think we can forget that when we had three channels in those news, they were absolutely collaborating with the establishment to lie mm -hmm. to the public. Now that still happens today, but yeah. it, it doesn't survive today. Eventually, because we have all these outlets, including reason being a major one for this, these heterodox outfits that say, Hey, the stuff they're telling you isn't true and, and proving it where back then, you know, we didn't know that the president was crippled. We didn't know that the president was sleeping with everything that moved, you know, yeah. and, 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 and was shot up with cortisone yeah, right. and stuff like that. We didn't know that, uh, you know, the president was, I mean, we had, I guess by 76, that the president was recording every conversation in the white house, you know, and then deleting mm -hmm. tapes and things like that. I mean, the seventies, it's an interesting decade too, because it's, you know, it's the high watermark of a certain kind of mainstream establishment culture. And the beginning of a long, you know, un, uninterrupted slide in the confidence and trust of major institutions, uh, things like the, uh, the church commission in, um, in, in the seventies, which looked into how the, uh, you know, uh, run by Frank church, a super liberal senator from Idaho, you know, looked into how the national security agency, the CIA and the FBI had been abrogating civil liberties and exceeding their legal province for decades, um, you know, which very mm. much predicted, uh, you know, what was, what came out under Snowden and, uh, Julian Assange, you know, in, in the 21st century. And we learned about Watergate and we learned that the, you know, the Vietnam war, the, the proximate cause for that in the Gulf of Tonkin was, was an, a manufactured event. And people mm. started recognizing that their leaders were lying to them. That became, you know, a major refrain and it was mostly true, you know, and you're right that the TV networks Partly because they're in a regulated 
mm-hmm. Mediascape, you know, where like you, you have to get your license renewed every couple of years by the FCC. You're not going to be as antagonistic to the, to the government that licenses you, right. you know, because, um, and that's one of the good things that, uh, about the current world is that both cable is not regulated. The content on cable is not regulated as directly by the government or workarounds on that. Um, but also then in the internet, you know, it's just, you, you know, people are less beholden to anybody. Um, and so that means they can also be a really insane, um, and say a lot of weird shit and that's totally unsupported. I, you know, which, and it, you know, it's up to the viewer to figure out what's real and what's not, but it's a radically different kind of technology and delivery system of what counts as news. And I, and ultimately I think it's a better one, um, because I think more voices are better than others. You know, I, I read the Bible and I'm like, oh, the Tower of Babel, that's like, that's where I want to live, right? <laughs> Funny argument I've had online not too long ago. There's a nostalgia uh, as people see these shows that say things they don't like. They want to go back to the fairness doctrine. Or we forget the fairness doctrine was a big right. part of things for a while. And the thing that amuses mm-hmm. me is they only see it one way. It means that they their people are going to get to go on the shows they don't like and say the truth. And I'd point out, you realize <laughs> it also means the guy you don't like gets to go mm-hmm. on your show and say the truth. That's the way yeah. that law works. And they're like, no, 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 that, that wouldn't happen at all. It's like, no. <laughs> yeah. As a related thing too, of like, I, you know, I mentioned before about how that, you know, ca- so cable, uh, because it's not broadcast, like the whole uh, notion of you know, the reason why the uh, FCC was able to regulate content and whatnot is, there was this um, a scarcity argument that the airwaves are scarce resources. And so the government will mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know, section them off and make sure everybody follows rules and things like that because of scarcity. Cable is not over the air. So, um, you know, it's, it's not regulated. It's not scarce in the same way. Um, but one of the ways that the federal government, and it continues to do this in various ways. And, there, you know, only a few years ago, there were explicit attempts to start regulating content on cable. But one of the ways they, they can apply a lot of pressure, and this speaks to a fear that runs through network, the idea of corporate interlocking corporate control of everything, including governments, mm-hmm. um, is that, you know, if you are Fox News, or rather, you're, you know, you're Fox, and then you have a cable channel, um, we can't regulate what's on Fox News, but we can lean on you mm-hmm. if you want things to go well for Fox. And, you know, when uh, when uh, Comcast, you know, one of the largest cable providers in the country, bought Universal, uh, you know, and NBC, and then suddenly you can't, maybe you can't get to Comcast programming director immediately, but you can be like, you know, NBC, you, you know, that's a, it's a nice business you have here. It'd be a shame if something mm-hmm. happened to it. So mm-hmm. there's that sense where... You know, conglomerates are simultaneously can be more powerful, but they're also more subject to control because you've got to, you know, you, you're, you're playing in a lot of different places. Right, right. Well, and we see that with all the debates about China's impact these days, you know, on corporate mm-hmm. America. Um, so we'd, you mentioned earlier we should talk about the predictive qualities of the movie. And it feels to me like you mm. certainly say you could point to a couple of people who basically are giving Howard Beale spiels with the same sort of passion yep. and drama now as part of what are supposed to be news or at least news yep. and commentary shows. Is that a good thing, a bad thing? What you... Well, uh, you know, one of the things to recognize is that, you know, Howard Beale, that he's not like an invented character out of whole cloth. And there was a newscaster 
in Florida who who shot herself, I believe, on uh, on camera. Right, right. That may or may not have been an inspiration, but that was kind of floating around. And there's, you know, there were earlier uh, kind of ideologues of mass media. Um, and and again, you know, it's also worth thinking about mass media as we understand it didn't really exist in a big way and probably until the 1920s so things like radio first uh, motion pictures also although you know until talkies came along in the 30s it wasn't quite as vibrant and like newsreels you know but newsreels became a thing and then television starting in the very late 40s but becoming a mass medium in the 50s uh, uh, uh newspapers national newspapers that would appear everywhere in a particular country um, at the same time, et cetera, these were, you know, they're relatively new phenomenon and they were always, um, a source of fear, uh, and anxiety among the educated classes because they thought that, um, you know, people are subject to propaganda. Uh, this was, you know, people like Mussolini, um, and it's, it's interesting, you know, Mussolini is kind of an object of ridicule and, and silliness, you know, like Mussolini is a clown with the big jaw and the bald head and, you know, in a loser, he could barely conquer, you know, uh, tribes in Africa that were starving and, you know, he, mm. he just washed out, but he was the first, in many ways, he was the first ruler to create a, pers- a cult of personality, a modern leader, a cult of personality using mass media as a way to spread his image and his messages. And the messages were both like, I'm a great man, follow me and you'll be great. And also like, if you disagree with me, you will be punished. Um, mm. but you know, there were pictures of him in Italian newspapers where he would be you know, beating the Italian tennis champ, but he, you know, but he was the nice guy. He was a beneficent ruler. So he didn't go into tennis because he was too busy running the country and making Italy great again. Um, but, um, uh, there's a great essay from the 20, uh, from the early thirties by Walter Benjamin called the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, which talks about the anxiety of mass media and its ability to kind of transmit messages almost onto uh, individuals like the mass who are never, they're non-player characters. They don't have any real analytic ability. They are screens or receivers upon which a message is beamed into or an image is beamed onto. And that's how they think. And that's, I think, part of the fear that you see in network that you don't need to look at the audience because we know the audience will just go with whatever message is there. Talk about how prevalent Mm -hmm. that belief is now, right? I mean, we must shut down the sources because the people are sheep and they're yeah. listening to the wrong people. And yeah. so the ideologues, though, the mass media ideologues, and there's people like Father Coughlin, the, uh, you know, anti-Semitic, anti-black, anti-everything Catholic priest who was based in Detroit, I guess, or in Michigan during the Depression, who ended up getting pulled off the air basically by the Catholic Church because he was an embarrassment. But, you know, he would rouse people into anger. Uh, you know, the movie... Uh, from the late fifties, which is very similar to network, uh, face in the crowd with Andy Griffith of all people, where he plays a grifter who becomes a, a TV star and he's a dangerous ideologue and his, his legion of fans will believe anything he says. And that movie is fantastic. I mean, it's really good in the same way network is really good. Even if I don't buy the, the scare that it's trying to push on people, mm-hmm. uh, what's great about a face in the crowd is that. The people like, and the network suits are all like, he's a ratings bonanza. We can't, we can't, we don't want to stop him. You know, he's selling so (laughs) much soap flakes. And uh, then there's a moment when he starts talking about how social security should be voluntary. And they're like, my God, what have we created? Um, You know, and and they're like, we got to take him off. 
Uh, but, you know, and then there are later movies about the, the, you know, television became almost immediately became this thing. It was, you know, it was the boob tube. It was raising our children. It was, you know, we just watch it and you see in a dark, you know, that the stereotypical image of a TV viewer is somebody in a darkened living room and the screen is reflecting on their face and they're just, you know, they're uncritically consuming and becoming whatever is beamed onto them. That is still prevalent. That's the main mm-hmm. thing we talk about media, you know, whenever, whether it's individualized or mass media, that's the fear, right? You and all three of us are, you know, mm-hmm. we have agency and autonomy and critical capabilities, but our neighbors, they're fucking retards, <laughs> right? And they believe whatever they see on Fox News or on MSNBC or in the, right. the mainstream media, whatever that is, you know, right. they, they get programmed by the New York Times or the New York Post, but only we on this show are, you know, able to really figure out. Um, so that's a, that's a prevalent, prevalent fear. And, you know, we see this now, especially, I mean, like, uh, you know, when I think watching this again, um, and Tucker Carlson is much smarter than this because he's writing the show as well as doing it. But like Tucker Carlson is a version of Howard Beale, who's a version yeah. of Andy Griffith in a face in the crowd who's lonesome roads, I think in that movie. And mm-hmm. this is a perpetual fear right, of media that, uh, you know, Joe Rogan sometimes gets Mm, roped into this. Jordan Peterson, who is nobody's idea of a mass media person, but like media, broadly speaking, and mass media and niche media allows for gurus. And gurus are, you know, they're Bengalis. They cast the spell. And, Mm. uh, uh, you know, and and we, we need to control them because their followers, you know, can't control themselves. We're actually going to do a face in the crowd next, and neither of us have seen it, so it's going to be an interesting. Uh, no, it's it's experience. it's fantastic, and again, mm-hmm. you know, uh, part of my uh, annoyance at um, network, if I may, um, it's partly like I hate movies that are about how evil television is, like what a bad <laughs> influence, right. and I think that's solely because, like, I grew up more of uh, you know, growing up in the seventies and eighties, it's like TV was king, movies were great, and movie, you know, I I can remember standing in line for, you know, multiple showings trying to get into Star Wars, you know, there's nothing Mm -hmm. like that on TV, maybe, you know, like watching Roots or something, but TV is the medium, Mm -hmm. you know, that I grew up with. That was the thing that was everywhere and ubiquitous. Um, so like I get pissed when movies are like, you know, what's really bad is TV because like when (laughs) movies came out, you know, people who listen to, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, we're we're reading novels, you know, we're saying like movies are really bad. They're for dumb people. You know, right. and when novels came out, it was something else, you know, it's like, the, it's just this kind of uncritical, you know, displacement of anxiety about being replaced onto the next right. big thing. Oh, sure. And I, uh, I like video games a lot. And so they, oh, uh, God, you know, yeah. there's a lot of criticism of, yeah. of those too. But one of the things, you know, there is certainly the temptation to think, oh, the three of us here are the ones who really know what's going on, as you said but uh, but beyond that, I, I think it's a perennial concern that the, when when Howard Beale brings in the corporate cosmology of Arthur Jensen towards the end there, you know, and he starts <laughs> yeah. losing ratings because of it, that things the things that he's saying, the the people being interchangeable as piston rods, right? Um, that is, it's it's something that concerns me, but I also try to keep a perspective that. This is a perennial concern. Like back mm-hmm. in Rome, you had people saying, oh, tempora, o mores, you know, you, that no matter what 
era you live in, you're going to complain about what the kids are up to these days. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and it's so, a legitimate concern, right? Mm-hmm. I think it, almost in every turn. Yeah. Though, you know, I think that it's really common to think, oh, TV is, and this was the whole meme in, in the 80s, right? Uh, TV dumbs us down, popular media dumbs us down. And then you look at what's really popular. What are kids reading? Oh, they have no attention span. They're reading Harry Potter, you know, right. 500 page books with intricate <laughs> plots. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's the most popular stuff on TV? Game of Thrones, you know, this thing that yeah. t- dozens of hours of, again, intricate plotting, et cetera. And yet we're supposed to have no attention span. You know, yeah, and, and we're stuff being like Joe Rogan, you know, which yeah, three now, hour podcast, three hours, which this like, is who has time? Be. Like, I, I, you can take an LSD trip in less time than it is to listen to Joe Rogan. <laughs> uh, it's yeah, you know, in the early part of the 21st century, which it still sounds weird saying that, uh, you know, even <laughs> though we're like it's almost over. A writer named Stephen Johnson wrote a book called Everything Bad Is Good for Us, and one mm-hmm. of his what one of the things he talked about, and I think he was mostly talking about The Sopranos and The Simpsons, where people talked about how TV was dumb, you know, and like, look at Three's Company, blah, 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 you know, mm-hmm. and, but he was looking at the evolution of TV plots from the golden age of TV from like the 50s and 60s. And by the way, there's like phenomenal TV shows from the 50s right. and 60s that are just, mm-hmm. I, you know, when I, I look at the, all of the, uh, the kind of uh, country sitcoms that got you know, got wiped out in the early seventies by CBS. The, so, you know, the like rural the, purge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And it's amazing because like green acres and petticoat junction and, you know, bewitched and things like that. They're actually incredibly well plotted, really complex. You know, they're good. They're well, well wrought urns. But when mm-hmm. you look at the Simpsons or the Sopranos to get it and to follow it, you have to be working on a lot of different levels. You know, what you're talking about, Ron was like, you know, game of Thrones where, I knew people who could like recite the map of Westeros and stuff. And I still don't understand. Like I, I, at various points, I was like, I had cheat sheets just to remember what the hell was going on. So things keep getting more and more complicated in a good way. I mean, I think as a society, we're so much more sophisticated and learned and willing to go to do the work, to enjoy a more complex piece of art for sure. Mm -hmm. And we should recognize that every once in a while, um, in a way. Having said that, you know, I, here's a question for you guys. I was interested to ask you guys this as it came up, that corporate cosmology thing. Mm-hmm. Why, in the context of, of network, why does that lead to worse ratings? Is it because, and, and why does it come from the head of the corporation? Well, I, in my opinion, uh, as far as I can tell, I think it led to worse ratings because the message was depressing. Nobody likes to be mm-hmm. told that they're not an individual or that it's meaningless to be an individual or whatever. Okay. But Jensen, this was his whole philosophy. He's, I think of his vision as being similar to Brave New World. You know, he said, you know, I'll boredom amused. And that's, you know, that was his idea is we're going to have this nice perfect world where everybody's going to be happy all the time and we're going to provide for them and there won't be any need for conflicts between people and all, you know, that he, he was, he was evangelical about it and he wanted Beale to be his prophet. That's my opinion. And why did Beale, why did he go along with it? I think, uh, well, partly I think, I think there's good reason to think that he was just really having a breakdown throughout the whole movie. And also he, Jensen used 
the words against him that Beal had had reported on from his previous vision. You know, you're on television, dummy. Yeah. Uh, Jensen reused that uh, to sort of sway him, and I think the, uh, you know, he used the setting of the boardroom with all those green bankers' mm-hmm. lamps and this dramatic speech. You know, he, uh, you know, like he said, he has he had a lot of experience selling things to people, and he wanted to sell something to uh, Howard Beal. Then right. Beal was. Bill was in a vulnerable state. Jensen was not so much, and I, I think he just took advantage of Beale's uh, general uh, mental disorder to uh, to make him accept uh, what couldn't be changed, so to speak. Also, I, I think, you know, Beale is searching for answers, and Jensen has a bigger cosmology than he does. And so, he you know... Mm-hmm. It's, I, I think about this with Cat Stevens, right? Cat Stevens, <laughs> when Yusuf Salam, please, yes. to his followers. Yeah. He was, uh, uh, you know, when he was a popular um, singer and songwriter, he was looking for answers. And first he yeah. went into numerology, you know, and eventually he found Islam. And the thing for me of those, regardless of whether you think either of those is the answer, is he needed something bigger than him that had mm-hmm. all the answers. And I feel like that's what it is here too. It's oh, here's this guy who has the answers, and so Beale is going to go in that that direction. Plus, yeah, he's uniquely vulnerable. I mean, I think they don't they, they obviously have it there. But, they don't comment on it too much the, the the mental illness aspect. But but then if Jensen is good at selling stuff, like the program he ultimately creates right. through Howard Beale is a total ratings flop. Right. I, yeah, I mean, well, I think there's like a a kind of you know, and, and the, the main thing is to get the Jensen speech out there because that's kind of the message, right? If, right. if this movie yeah. is delivering a telegram, it's that, right? That you are all idiots, you know, and you need to think for yourselves. But it's, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's where a place where the anger and the kind of vituperation at the audience. And then there's William Holden's speech when he leaves Faye Dunaway, which is just like, you know, kind of hitting a lot of notes of the same thing it's mm-hmm. you know i don't know it it seems kind of like that's where the rage took over the screenwriter to a point where i don't know that he's making a lot of sense in yeah well they do at least at least um with with arthur jensen there is a line in it where uh robert duvall says says something like um you know he he suggested to Jensen that television is a volatile business, and, mm-hmm. and Jensen said that, well, if it's if it's that volatile, that suggests that there's a problem with management. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. you, I, know. you know what I liked from that, you know, or this, focusing on this too, is that, and I think this is in a way, I don't think Patty Chayefsky or Sidney Lumet meant it, but it also casts a real question on the Golden Age stuff, right? Because the fact is, is that, TV is always a business, you know, Hollywood is a business and like, there's always been a real contradiction or like, you know, a a line that is kind of a a electrified fence between being aesthetically pure and being, you know, uh, motivated by truth and beauty and, you know, realness, if you're a news person or something and profit and, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's heightened, you know, you can say that about any art form you want to. You know, the artist has to be true to themselves, but they also have to sell it in order to make the next record or the next movie. But it's so highlighted in in movies and in TV. Um, and, you know, it, it 
it, it kind of throws into relief. Like, well, you know, Edward R. Murrow, you know, he used to do advertisements at the end of his show, like his new show. And, uh, you know, and that's why I smoke Chesterfield or whatever, mm. <laughs> you know, in the cast of sitcoms in the fifties at the end they, you know, they would all, you know, the, uh, at the, the cast of, I remember mama would be uh, drinking Folgers coffee at the end. And there's those mm -hmm. great ads of Barney Rubble. These are great on YouTube. And I remember showing them to my kids who were like, they didn't know how to process it, but there's a, you can Google it, uh, Flintstones, you know, Barney and Fred, I think they're smoking yeah, Winston's. Winston's yep. Yeah. They're, they're hiding out from their wives right. and they're like, ah, oh, these Winston's really are smooth, you know, pleasure, <laughs> flavor, et cetera. And it's like, <laughs> you know, it's all always tarnished by commerce. And like, as a libertarian, I don't think there's a necessary, uh, you know, mutual exclusion, you know, hey. rule between hey being profitable and being artistic or being legitimate. But hmm. this movie seems to draw a very hard line. Like you are either motivated by truth or by profit. And it's like, man, then you really picked the wrong industry. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I really felt in this is I feel like there's a line from Chayefsky to Aaron Sorkin, who oh, I, I is. feel is a similar kind of writer. You know, both brilliant yet on the nose. <laughs> I don't know if you can, I have on my notes here, Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. Uh, Sorkin, in fact, um, uh, this it's in the New York Times. I forget when. I don't have the exact URL. Uh, he talked about when he was making the social network, which essentially takes, in a lot of ways, it takes the critique of the audience of, you know, Bubis Americanus, as, uh, <laughs> as uh, H.L. Mencken would have put it, um, you know, and takes it from the TV audience to the Facebook audience. He talks about how network is the movie you know, yeah. that gave him the insight into how bad Facebook was. Hmm. Um, so you're absolutely right. And everything in Aaron Sorkin, he hates everything that comes after whatever he is expert in. And he, <laughs> you know, he had a short lived show, which is also, it's kind of interesting to think it was called like uh, studio 90 studio live or, or yeah, yeah. From live from sunset strip or whatever, which is a callback to, you know, the wondrous late fifties, you know, live TV shows, anthology shows. And uh, mm. that came out around the same time as 30 Rock. And what's interesting is that when those two shows premiered, uh, the critics and, you know, people were like, oh, 30 Rock is, yeah, it's okay, but it's not really good. But this Aaron Sorkin show, this gets it, you know, and it's a critique of TV and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, it turned out that 30 Rock is this long, you know, incredibly complicated, multi-level fantastic sitcom about the, you know, about television, you know, in the industry and the talent and everything, and has a lot of insights and it, and it gives you a critique so you can watch shows like 30 Rock and everything else and kind of, you know, read it more critically. And whereas mm -hmm. this Aaron Sorkin thing is, is, you know, uh, uh, just a love bomb to an era, which at mm -hmm. the time, if you read smart people in the fifties, they were talking about these you know, Union Carbide presents, you know, Playhouse 90 or something as like crap. So it's, you know, it's all kind of, we, we, you know, we rummage through the past for the things that make us feel good about what we're doing and give us more arrows in our quiver to attack our enemies. But mm. I think the Saren connection, uh, Sorkin connection here is, is really important. And it's worth just if we need, I think one thing uh, I guess everybody would agree, like we need to have better media literacy because like there's just more and more media. This is how we live in the world. It's through sources that we can't fully understand and we don't know their origins and their truth qualities. We need to be critical readers 
more than ever because we're consuming more than ever and we don't know where it comes from. Mm -hmm. Um, but we do a really bad job at that. And I think reading, you know, network as in its failure kind of to do that also gives us an ability to be better at that. And the same thing with somebody like Aaron Sorkin, he, I think his work is mostly terrible to be quite honest, but I think it's a, it's a good text to learn on how do we become better, more critical consumers of everything. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I thought that, you know, Sorkin is famous for the walking and talking and they actually, this has mm-hmm. a lot of similarity. There's a lot of dialogue, yeah. you know, lots of expository dialogue, but Lumet is much better at presenting that. Right. I mean, I feel yeah. like these are very real offices and people doing real things and you don't feel like, oh, we're, we're, you know, doing this just so yeah. we can get this dialogue Come across. with me. I've got to drive across town in a taxi cab. <laughs> right. Come with me and we'll talk. Yeah. Yeah. And also, the, uh, I see Robert Altman in this, and especially in terms of the overlapping yeah. dialogue and natural mm-hmm. dialogue. I don't know, 76, I mean, he must have been, I'd, um, I'd have to go back and look at when his films were done. I don't know if he was an influence on this or not. Um, uh, yeah. And, you know, Lumet is a really fantastic director. And, uh, you know, I also was seeing, and I guess this would be more of a case of uh, David Mamet being influenced by this as well. I mean, he was already up and running as a playwright, but that Mm. kind of action, you know, and there's a kinetic energy, which I think also traces back to some of the uh, British kitchen sink cinema of the uh, late fifties and early sixties. And, you know, people like Harold Pinter, who was already at work where there's a lot of, you know, like it's a very good way of both kind of getting things out that need to get out. So you understand what's going on, but also giving the impression of like, you're in a world where you're only, you're never hearing the full conversation. And so you kind of, you know, that like your knowledge isn't complete of anything and that the world is kind of shadowy. There's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of edges around the corner that you're not sure what's in view and what's out of view. I'm curious your take on this compared to other films about media. Um, you know, there's his girl Friday, all the president's Mm -hmm. men broadcast news. I mean, would you point to any of those or, or another as kind of maybe more reflective of, of things that you would agree with or, um, I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. And broadcast news is another, you know, thing that fits broadly into this. I remember watching that and hating that movie when it came out. Um, and it's also interesting that the, you know, the big reveal in that movie is that, uh, William Hurt's character like fakes, uh, you know, tears and, (laughs) you know, and it's like playing fast and loose with the camera. And it's like, man, we've really gone past that. You know, it's (laughs) like, and you know, I, for me, um, you know, the stuff that you know, and I guess this is just, you know, it's, it's partly when I was born and where I was raised, I grew up in New Jersey. So like, I hate things that are, uh, you know, constantly pointing to like the idealistic vision of something as pure. And then the, the sad world we live in, which is awful and corrupt because I think we're never really pure and we're never really corrupt. Um, and so what I, What I like about these kinds of movies is actually like if it can start a conversation or be a prompt for a conversation where we recognize that, you know, there's no fall from grace. Like we're born, and maybe this is also being raised Catholic, that, you know, to be born is to be sinful. Um, And there's no, you know, there's, well, and this is where the Catholics mess it up, right? They say there were two people conceived without sin, Jesus and Mary later. And that's, you know, obviously a Christian heresy. 
but um, we need to always kind of be punching our way to the truth and that the truth is contextual, that the truth is, is sloppy and provisional. Um, and so I, what I want to live in is a world where we recognize wherever we stand at a certain point and we say, okay, this is real. This is the limit of everything that is good and pure. In a couple of minutes, we're going to be in a slightly different place. And so mm -hmm. in terms of these other movies that you were talking about, Ron, and something like broadcast news, I feel like they create a false dichotomy, you know, between what is good and what is not good. Mm -hmm. And the only solution to this, and I think about this a lot because, uh, in terms of social media, where social media, now all of the arguments that were once moved against movies and against TV and even novels going back to the 19th century. And, uh, you know, video games in the eighties and nineties and cable TV, you know, now are being fully brought against social media and they, they come for calls for regulation and those calls for regulation are never disinterested. It's just certain people wanting to be able to clamp down and have their world preserved mm. and everybody else's mm -hmm. be screwed over. What we really need to do is to really ramp up explicitly the idea that you know, we, we need to be better consumers. We, we create meaning in the act of consumption. It's not really what the producers is. People can act in better or worse good faith. Um, and I think, you know, and I think there's a lot of bad faith actors in media and there always have been. And it's a question of mm -hmm. you want to, you want to reward people who are good faith actors, even when they fuck up. But mostly what we need to do is to create an ethos of trust, but verify you know, in mm -hmm. everything that we're doing. And that might make the world less fun and less livable on a day-to-day -day basis, but I think it'll produce better results. The film uh, I've actually heard a, a number of journalists say really gets it right is Shattered Glass, about Stephen Glass mm -hmm. making yeah. up stories for the New Republic. Does that resonate mm -hmm. with you? Or? Uh, you know what was, uh, yeah, I, and I've seen that movie, and that's, it's interesting. It's also that the larger question in that is the the Charles Lane character, who's the editor of the New Republic. Andrew Sullivan hired Stephen Glass and kind of promoted him, as well as a bunch of other bad journalists, like Ruth Shalit is the mm. other one. And they were young Wunderkin who somehow were producing this incredibly great copy. And then it turned out one was a plagiarist and the other was a fabulous. And Lane, you know, he's a good figure in Shattered Glass because he's like, he's just kind of applying a, a reality test to this, like this seems too good to be true. Let's follow up. Um, and I think those kinds of stories are always good to tell. It also, what, what's good about that story or the broadly, and it's funny, just, uh, I was talking to a friend at lunch today and we, I was, I brought up shattered glass, but <laughs> what the, the real good thing about shattered glass and it's less the movie, although I think it's really watchable and it, you know, and it's interesting is that Stephen Glass and Ruth Shalit, and there were a couple of other scandals at the New Republic, it led to the diminution of the New Republic's reputation. It's, it's mm -hmm. a rare mm -hmm. case where a publication had a bunch of really bad actors and it suffered. Like, because the New Republic, uh, you know, when I joined Reason in 1993, the then editor of Virginia Pastrell, like, kind of talked about how, what sh her vision for Reason, or one benchmark, was like, we want to be like taken as seriously as the New Republic and Harper's. Um, and, you know, Harper's is one of the oldest continuously published yeah. magazines in the world and mm -hmm. in the U.S. And the New Republic, which was founded in the late teens or early 20s by a bunch of very well-regarded people, including Walter Lippmann, you know, who's a dean of American journalism. 
and all of that kind of stuff. And like by the time, you know, well, I've got that five years into my edit editorship and it was not so much through anything I did, but it's like Harper's and the New Republic had kind of disappeared in a big way from the conversation because they didn't produce what they needed to be doing. So if that's, to me, that's a good takeaway from Shattered Glass is that like, yeah, there is, you know, the American public, including elite opinion as well as mainstream opinion, like if you are a bad faith actor long enough, people will be like, okay, forget it. We're done. Uh, right. And then you got to rebuild and you can rebuild and the new Republic has gone through multiple uh, kind of ownership things and they're coming back a little bit. But um, so to me, that's a, that's a morality tale that has a happy ending, you know, which right. is that if you publish people who are liars, eventually you lose your influence. Uh, and, and that's good. A really practical question since you've, you know, been um, editor like of reason, I mean, how would you catch this or what is there in play? I mean, if, you know, some young person on the staff just starts making stuff yep. up like Stephen Glass did. What would happen or, you know, what would your, what, what would your take on that be? Is it? Yeah. You know, um, well now, because I'm an editor at large, I would just, I would say, you know, this wouldn't have happened on my watch, <laughs> you know, so I'd let it rip, you know, uh, no, but, uh, uh, more importantly, uh, you know, the, and this is something I think every editor, every manager in whatever industry you're in, you know, like you're paranoid about this, right? Because this is stuff where it could be really bad. And Slate had a series of fabulous writing for them. And, you know, and yeah. it, it, it hurt particular people there more than it hurt the overall brand. So I consider that a market failure, but, um, you know, people did pay. You need to be, um, you know, this again, that trust, but verify, you know, which is, you know, a Reagan line about uh, mm -hmm. nuclear disarmament is pretty good life advice. And it certainly is in journalism. And it is, you know, it's kind of like a business deal. Like if, you know, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. If a story is too good to be true, it probably is. One of the things that Reason has always done, and this is an ethos that I inherited, and it's one that exists long after I was in any kind of management position, is that you try to show your math um, so that uh, somebody reading whatever you're writing and whether it's a kind of essayistic kind of sortie into, you know, policy or you're telling a story, you know, that you're giving enough of the evidence in a way that people can kind of make an independent investigation of what you're talking about. And I think being that kind of transparency is really powerful and really good. And ultimately mm -hmm. it's more persuasive. It It ultimately means that you're probably going to be less bombastic and you're going to be less kind of bomb throwing and whatnot, but you won't be writing as many retractions, okay. you I'm know, sure. and that that's good. And it's a trade-off, but ultimately, you know, it's better to be less kind of incendiary, but more on target. You've, you reminded me, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this quote. It's, it's an old journalistic quote. It's a, uh, uh, if your mom says she loves you, check right. it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Most, right. I think most journalists would have to admit that. Yeah, it doesn't check out. Right. <laughs> you were talking to the wrong lady. <laughs> you know, you are, uh, you are at a loss if you, if you're coming up against like true pathological liars, it's, you know, and Stephen Glass did this where, uh, the guy who ultimately kind of brought him to justice was a, um, a reporter at what was then called Forbes Digital Tool. It was their website. And Forbes had one of the first kind of fully formed digital presences. It's, you know, it's interesting. And he started asking around, like he, he followed up the names of the, you know, in stories right. and, and 
at one point, uh, Glass, you know, even created or had his brother create fake websites. And, you know, he would have people, you know, calling somebody to verify things. Yeah, so yeah. it's mm. hard to do. Um, and in a way, you know, all journalism, and I think this is true in a lot of different ways, like it's less about, you know, making a mistake in the first place. And it's more about what you do when it's revealed um, mm. and how do you deal with that? And this is where, Guy, I think uh, you might have brought this up earlier, like the idea of transparency, uh, like one of the things that I think is great, and this runs through a lot of different elements of contemporary society, we're kind of in an age of forced transparency, where if you're lying about stuff and if you're a cheater and a fraud and a faker, you're going to be found out sooner or later. And it might be that people don't really care, but you know, if you treat people horribly, if you are, you know, lying about the value of things, um, you know, if you're a government and you're saying like, we don't do that. And then, you know, Julian Assange or WikiLeaks and Edward Snowden come along, you know, it's, you're, you're going to be found out. And so mm -hmm. like, it's, it's easier than ever to start with the truth. Um, and then if you get caught in a lie, kind of owning it and doing what you need to do to kind of work through it and then start over again. I, um, mm -hmm. I think that's really pretty great. That conflicts. And, you know, part of what I think, um, is resonant with network is what do you do with kind of news people who are, you know, they become ideologues, you know, like Tucker Carlson is the person of the moment, uh, maybe Joe Rogan and a much more, I don't, I don't think Rogan is not an ideologue and he's not really a guru. He's kind of, he's a, he's an everyman. He's like Glenn Beck. Uh, was at a certain point where he's teaching himself things. And part of the excitement of listening to Joe Rogan is that he's an autodidact and he's kind of sharing his knowledge acquisition with you. And that can be exciting and interesting. Um, it leaves mm. him open to capture when you listen to Joe Rogan. He's kind of always in the throes of the last person he talked to until he talks mm. to somebody new and then he kind of changes a little bit. Uh, but people like Tucker Carlson, people like Rachel Maddow, like you, people you know, you worry about people who are listening to a figure who is giving people exactly what they want, um, mm -hmm. and reinforcing mm -hmm. existing beliefs. Um, and it presumes of course, that Tucker's audience is absorbing him uncritically. Um, and that's probably not fair to well, them. And on that mm -hmm. theme, I think with Maddow and probably Tucker, you know, I hate to get specific about yeah. current politics, but the reality is. I think that what you see is audience capture, you know, that phrase mm -hmm. where as they get a more and more specific audience, that audience is only responsive to certain things yeah. and they start giving them more and more of that. And, and we've seen know, that... recent with some recent, you know, international politics, all of a sudden they get out of sync and yeah. they have to like snap back to where their audience is. Right? You know, the <laughs> ultimate yeah. example of this, and you know, I guess we haven't really mentioned him, but we should, because he's the ultimate example of this is, you know, Donald Trump is kind of Howard Beale, you know, but Howard Beale has left TV behind and is now, you know, running for president, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, Trump, it's fascinating because, you know, he was, he's our Mussolini, right? You know, he's the, the, he's the orange Mussolini. And yet when he goes around now and says like, no, no, vaccines are good. I created, I invented the vaccines. People boo him. And mm -hmm. he's kind of like, what the fuck do I do next? You know, because <laughs> he even, mm -hmm. even Donald Trump is captured by his audience ultimately. Um, and that is kind of a fascinating oh. phenomenon. And I think it's one that 
a lot of critical theory about the audience or about mass communications hasn't fully, they haven't figured that out. Like, how does that make sense? Because I thought it was the big corporations and that the suits up in, you know, in the C-suite that is so far up, it's in a cloud, you know, in the skyscraper. They're dictating, like, we've got too much, you know, soap powder and we got to push it and we're going to make them buy it, you know? And it's like, but it doesn't work that way. And then audiences go hot and cold, you know, demand. This is, you know, for me, this is one of the reasons I think the deep psychological reasons that leftists hate markets. It's not because markets are great, you know, that market structures create a world in which you can absolutely predict and force people to buy whatever you want. It's that mm. they're so volatile, they're so disruptive and like they're so subjective that, you know, you can't build, you know, you can't make enough cabbage patch dolls this year. And then by the time you ramp up production, yeah. nobody wants them anymore. And that's mm, what's yeah. really frightening <laughs> is a world where, you know, audiences are fickle. Um, that's, mm. that's also, a nightmare. you know, what causes audience, you know, hatred is shortage. So, um, this is classic, you know, guy and I both play video games, um, video game consoles, you know, they'll come yeah. out with frequently, this is a whole history, come out with the big new one that everyone has to have and they can't make them fast enough. Yeah. And literally you'll go two years. We're now with PlayStation five still in shortages yeah. two or three years out. And it, and people always say, oh, they're doing it on purpose to, you know, get attention yeah. and get stories written. No, their customers hate them. They would make yeah. more and sell it to them if they could. You know? Yeah. And it's, it, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that. I mean, that to me is like. Uh, this is also, uh, you know, the literary and cultural studies I did as a grad student was a lot was about kind of audience, the theorizing the audience for mass media, because they're, you know, in cultural studies, which really uh, kind of intellectually originate out of uh, uh, the Frankfurt School, which was an attempt in 30s Germany, and then it kind of migrated to the U.S., um, because they were enemies of the Nazis and they, the, the lucky ones were able to get out. Um, but, um, it, you know, the Frankfurt school was trying to blend Freudian psychology and Marxist economics into a coherent philosophy of kind of market culture and consumer culture and, you know, what, uh, Adorno and Horkheimer called the culture industry. And it was very much predicated upon, you know, coming out of Marxism an idea that producers could create whatever they wanted and then force it through the system. And it's fundamentally a misunderstanding of how markets work and free enterprise works. But that was, that's a very strong thread throughout cultural studies in the way we kind of analyze things. And when I was in grad school, this was in the late eighties and through the mid nineties, a counter argument, which was much more focusing on how do, how do individuals consume mass produced items that are the same for everybody. You know, this is Andy Warhol 101 that what's great about Coca-Cola is that everybody gets the same thing. You know, whether you're Elizabeth Taylor or a bum on the street, it's the same product, mm -hmm. but we use that as individuals to create very different senses of self and to create communities. And, um, I'm a big fan of like the fan generated art, um, that was starting to come up. Like, you know, Star Trek was one of the first kind of, mm -hmm. um, you know, shows when it went off the air, it's fans started doing, you know, uh, uh zines, uh, that were, you know, oftentimes typewritten and photocopied or Xerox, uh, you know, uh, mimeographed and whatnot, but they would create stories using the, the characters and, you know, famously and somewhat scandalously, 
of a huge motif that was written by mostly heterosexual women was uh, Kirk, Spock, sla- what became known as slash fiction, where Kirk and Spock were <laughs> gay lovers and having adventures you know, throughout the world. And it's like they took a mass-produced item that was never quite that popular, but and then they bent it to whatever they wanted. Like this was an interesting thing for them to do. And it's, you know, and that's to me, that's what is interesting about mass culture is that it it's produced. It's the same thing on every TV screen, say, or, you know, every McDonald's hamburger is the same thing, but it means radically different things to different people. And they use it as a building block to create an identity, to create a, a community, to create a, a sense of meaning. And to me, that's kind of a meta critique of the types of movies that network represent, um, because they, they don't, you know, they're not even thinking in those terms. And I think part of that is also generational, uh, same thing with video games, you know, are, are amazing. Like when, and you guys, I, I take it not only because you're video game players, but you're like super computer programmers and stuff like that. (laughs) The idea when you could start to really modify corporate products, you know, and punks did this with clothing, they would, you know, paint on it, they would cut it up and stitch it back together, or put incongruous patches on things. But like, that's, you know, a form of freedom and liberation that our technology is just giving us more and more tools to, right. you know, no, make it what our happens own. In video games is, um, not only do the fans modify the games and it used to be, they would yeah. have to really hack them to do it. Now yeah. it's more common that it's supported they'll entirely redo them or they will rescue games that, um, came out were very flawed and broken and didn't sell well. And so they get no attention from the company and the fans of those games fix them and make them available to everyone. It's that, and and that is partly the story of the Star Trek fan community. When it went off the air, it went like 69 or 70. And then Mm -hmm. when it came back in the late seventies as a revived franchise, I mean, it was in reruns, but it was the Star Trek community mm. of, you know, weirdos, the, you know, and they're great, uh, but they like kind of kept it afloat and made it vibrant. And then, you know, the, you know, Paramount or whoever owned their, uh, I think Viacom at some point owned them. I don't even know if Viacom is still around, but, um, you know, we're able to kind of come back with a better version of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And that happens with Star Wars too. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. I, I'm also, I, I really, we're, you know, we're here, we're going from, you know, talking about William Holden's gin blossoms <laughs> to Star Wars, but you know, I, I love these franchises that are kind of terrible, but they manage to maintain, hold a large and growing audience because mm-hmm. somehow they allow for conversations to happen that fans really want, and you know, like too- what you have. Like with Star Trek, that was to Lucas's credits, right? But, yeah, um, but no, very he much, allowed yeah. it when yeah. many corporations would not have. Yeah. He um, started out, he was trying to clamp down on every copyright violation, every trademark violation. And then he realized, no, this is, this is what is, you know, keeping, it's going to make it grow and grow. And, you know, I mean, the second trilogy of films, I actually like them. Uh, I, I'm very uh, you, rare. You're a guy. Or, yeah. No, a guy. Well, I, thank you. I, uh, yeah, I, we're I on enjoyed the, them. Yeah, I we're on the right side of history. Yeah, was, I acknowledge yeah. there are criticisms to be leveled against. <laughs> yeah, I, I, want, uh, I always joke, I would love to watch a Star Wars C-SPAN of it's just the Imperial Senate <laughs> going like, I want to hear those special order speeches from Jar Jar Banks about the, you know, we need a stoplight on Tatooine. You know, these, these pod racers are running into each other, you know, um, but 
Um, you know, but it's amazing that like the second major, you know, the second half of that production was almost universally denounced by critics and fans. And it just made it bigger and bigger and bigger because <laughs> somehow it manages to stage a conversation to hold space for the things that people want to talk about. And, you know, I think that's fantastic and it's great. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it, some, some corporate products do that. I mean, Spider-Man is, you know, it, it, I, I was a comic book nerd growing up and it was Spider-Man, unlike say Daredevil, like Daredevil would suck or be good or Thor, depending on who was writing and drawing it. Uh, Spider-Man, it didn't matter. Like somehow there's something in that that allows people to like it and want more of it, no matter what it looks like or what's being told. Hmm. And Star Wars, Star Trek, they're somehow like that. It's it's kind of fascinating. Well, and, mm -hmm. and the, you know, talk about it, yeah, getting all yeah. over the place. But if you think about it, the last Spider-Man film, um, is in No Way Home, right? Um, it actually was basically a fan film right. where they yeah. were, just like the, the fan fiction we were talking about, they were mm -hmm. going back and kind of re, you know, considering the previous spider-man especially the andrew um garfield garfield yeah. spider-man which had been largely panned and people you know we kind of overdid it he did a good mm -hmm. job they bring them together and then and when those old spider-man came on screen in my theater i was in people went crazy yeah um and so that's just fascinating that basically now you know <laughs> They're doing their own fan film. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, you know, and, and now we're, yeah, really off, uh, kind <laughs> of the track of network, but it's, this is where, in a way, this is where corporate culture went, right? It started to listen to the audience more and it's not that it's giving them what the, it's not spoon feeding us. It's desperately trying to keep up with where the audience is headed. And I think that's generally a positive trend. Um, you know, and it is true that, you know, because of technology, it's, uh, you know, it's just amazing how much more people are empowered to watch what they want when they want it in the context that they want. So to me, you know, a, a version of this is um, uh, late night TV shows, which mostly suck, you know, because they've been doing mm. the same thing since, you know, fucking Steve Allen was on The Tonight Show or Jack Parr, even before Johnny Carson. Steve Allen was doing so much more. Than yeah. Guys. No, and, and, you know, Letterman, I think early on Letterman would kind of cop to this and then he pretended he'd never heard of Steve Allen. But like he basically was just redoing Steve Allen, who was like kind of doing Dada stuff almost. Right, um, right. But, oh, you know. Yeah. But now people consume late night shows. They don't watch the whole thing. They take small snippets of it and watch it on YouTube or, or resend it around and even Saturday Night Live. And that's part of what has been empowered over the past, I don't know, you know, 40 or 50 years of technological advances, as well as the audience feeling, you know, empowered to say, like, I don't need to watch this the way the producers, the creators intended. I'm going to take the parts of it I like and maybe mash them up. Um, you know, just before I was watching this, there was a great, uh, my uh, favorite um, uh, kind of culture right now to consume is Seinfeld Instagram. There are all <laughs> of these Seinfeld-related accounts where they just take and, and reappropriate Seinfeld and stuff. And there was one account where uh, they take the scene where Newman from Seinfeld, Wayne Knight, who was in Basic Instinct, and he is interrogating... Um, uh, Sharon Stone, when she crosses her legs, you know, without mm -hmm. underwear mm -hmm. on and like mm -hmm. they intercut that, which was then parodied in a Seinfeld episode, but, uh, he's interviewing and it's Vincent Gallo. 
Um, and like the, you know, it's just this mashup of Vincent Gallo talking crazy stuff and the people from basic instinct, but it's in a Seinfeld context. So it's like Newman from Sci, you know, and it's so fucking funny. And like, it would have been impossible 20 years ago to do that unless you could sneak into CBS production studios, you know, mm-hmm. and now it's like everybody with a phone can make that, you know, and it's like, it opens up, you know, a vast multiverse mm-hmm. of, you know, of weird, wonderful stuff that fractures the audience for the mainstream big thing. But it also, and it also allows us to like cut off a little piece and take it and wrap right. it in our own right. spices and then send right. it out <laughs> into the world. I, I'm wonderful. so amazed at what all this enables. Like, uh, you know, I didn't pay much attention to YouTube until last year or two. And there's so much amazing stuff on yeah. YouTube. Like there's this young woman who, you know, reviews films and other things in a really entertaining way. And so here you have someone who's probably 20, 23, mm-hmm. has a million plus viewers probably making a yeah. living off of this so much more talented than anything that I could do. And it just, you know, it is incredible, uh, what all this has, has allowed. Um, but let's, uh, <laughs> wrap up a little bit with actual, uh, yeah. stuff about the film here. So our normal, you know, conclusion is, is it worth watching for a modern audience? I feel like we all say it's oh, worth yeah. watching, but we're all in a different place on the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> Can I, I'll, I'll sure. go first. I okay. want to hear what your guys are, but I, I think that network is, um, you know, is a really, um, it's a film first off, anybody who is interested at all in kind of seventies paranoid thrillers, which is a fantastic mm-hmm. genre, which has oh, yeah. left us. This is not, you know, the parallax view is like, you know, a quintessential one or three days of the condor, you know, where mm-hmm. it turns out that either the CIA or a big corporation is running everything. And, you know, the world is a horrible place. This fits into that. And so if you're into that, mm-hmm. it's at all important. It's also important if you're into television history or I think movie history. And if you're interested in where the critiques of contemporary social media come from, even though they don't make sense because part of what social media or, you know, web 2.0, maybe if we can use that term was about, was about empowering individuals and end users to kind of create the environment they want. Um, but the arguments that are being made against that are really in high relief in network. And then, you know, the other thing, and this is just more selfish than anything is to, if you want to look at the different, you know, one of the main differences in American life over the past 50 years, say, is like 50 years old, you you were an old fuck and it's not that way anymore. And like, this is, I used to be a columnist for the Daily Beast and in 2016 in the run-up to the president or in the, during the presidential election, I read, you know, regardless of what you think about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And I, I was not a fan of either. I voted for the libertarian candidate. Um, mm-hmm. but I was like, you know, these people are ancient and mm-hmm. they look pretty good. Like they're vibrant, like they're not, mm-hmm. you know, and obviously Trump is oh, both of them and Joe Biden. I mean, you know, once you, once you, it's 80 is not the new 50, that's for sure. Right. But, <laughs> um, but it's an amazing change in American culture where William old Holden it was William Olden, you know, and it's like, <laughs> yep. and like, that's just not the case. Now you look at, you know, he's the age of basically the age Obama is and like right. Obama, you wouldn't be like, oh, that guy's got a, he's over. We also do Dr. Who and going from the beginning oh, God, of the, yeah. fir- the first Dr. Who, uh, William Hartnell, mm-hmm. he's our mm-hmm. age and he looks 75. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. you would never guess. Yeah. 
Doctor yeah. Who, by the way, is the one of the great texts, you know, and it's been around since what, like the early sixties, I think. Sixty four. Yeah. yeah. It, and yeah, uh, the that the, the fan the back. fan communities that build off of that, you know, and I would argue mm. that it's it's interesting that a lot of the times it's works that I would argue are not that good from a kind of standard aesthetic view. Right. Produce the most rich kind of ongoing conversation with audiences and like Dr. Who's fan community and the interaction of that between the producers and everything else is almost unparalleled. It's really fascinating. Well, and the same thing happened as with Star Trek, which is, um, it was off the air for a long time and Mm -hmm. it, and not only did, you know, sort of fan interest bring it back, but it was the former fans of it who had gotten into television frequently because they were Dr. Who fans who then recreated the show and made it the modern thing. That's, you know, the other, I guess, uh, and now I'm I'm moving us away from network again, (laughs) but this is kind of a reason to watch it is also the shift into, you know, we're in, uh, you know, to think about television as uh, as a relatively new medium in 1976, it's like, it's kind of about 20 years old, you know, because it didn't become a mass phenomenon until the mid fifties. And then it became the, the medium. But it's amazing how quickly it matured is something also like rock and roll. You know, when you consider rock and roll in 1955 and then in 1975 and what people were doing, it had, you know, it's, it's like those, you know, when, uh, you know, uh, scientists use fruit flies to experiment on genetics because like every, you can go through a lot of generations, like it's amazing. TV is still kind of a new phenomenon and it's like Mm. unbelievably rich and Baroque and it's still evolving and changing and it's kind of morphed into screens everywhere. And YouTube is kind of son of TV or something, but it's also very Mm. different and it's worth thinking about. It would be good to look at maybe a movie about TV, you know, in the, you know, maybe you start with a a face in the crowd and then you go to (laughs) network and then the, the cable guy. You know, and then like, what are the other things to check in to see how this medium has really radically changed? But, uh, so I, I mean, I think network is, it's also an an incredibly well acted movie, um, which is worth thinking about. Um, but Mm -hmm. I, I, I think again, I, I'm very critical of it, but I think it's an absolute, you know, five-star must watch. I will, uh, so I'll have Guy do the last word since he chose it. So I'll say, um, I, you know, I, I think that it's worth watching as part of a continuum. Like guy and I have talked about, there are certain movies that are just going to be remade over time. Mm-hmm. You know, clearly, for example, the, a man called horse, you know, mm-hmm. avatar, et cetera, that movie is yep. just going to get remade. They just did it in the Boba Fett series. Also and, a fan product, right? I mean, both the mm-hmm. Boba Fett series is fan right. service, yep. right? Yep. It's, yep. Yeah. Sure. And, uh, so I think the whole thing of, oh, you know, media personalities are going to destroy the world or whatever. It's just a movie that's going to get remade. You have this and Bob Roberts and others. And so it's always worth looking at what was that movie that came out at that time? And what does it tell you about where we were at? Um, I think, you know, uh, let me say, I think, I think I have the same issues with Chayefsky that I do with Aaron Sorkin, although I have more issues with Aaron Sorkin, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. cause he has, this he, problem sh- he with, should know better. He should know but, better. And also he has this problem with, um, he doesn't care. I've talked about this before. We did the social network with, uh, Robbie Suave. Aaron Sorkin doesn't care at all about the facts of who he's talking about. He's going to make yep. up a story about that person, but he's going to sell the story based on the fact that it's about yep. that person. If right. he changed <laughs> the name, I'd be okay with it, but then he right. wouldn't get people in to see what, 
what it is. That's, and I just, you know, I, I find that actually unethical. Yeah, that, that I agree. <laughs> and it's also, this is one of the reasons why you see, you know, people like Stephen Glass or, or a lot of the times where people are selling a made up story as fact-based because if it's made up, people won't buy yeah, it, right. you know, and, and that's, yeah. that's a cheat. That's a real cheat, yeah. you know, and, and there's a good reason to insist on a, a dividing line. Like if you're using, if you're selling something as fiction or nonfiction, it should be representative of that genre. Right. Right. Um, also, but I, I like limits directing a lot in this. We talked about mm -hmm. it and, and I think he's very good. And I also like in the casting that another topic guy, and I talk about occasionally real people who are adults are cast in these things. These are not, mm -hmm. I mean, Faye Dunaway is obviously a beautiful woman. She may have even been a model at some point. I'm not sure, but um, she was. these are not people cast to be 25 and mm -hmm. representing, yeah. you know, and I always appreciate that, especially as I get older. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I enjoy it, but I do have the same concerns you do about it, the way it treats the audience and the way it kind of overly simplifies things. I had mixed feelings about Ned Beatty's performance. I felt like the clear reason he did it was that one speech. And I felt like that speech was a little artificial and over the top, mm -hmm. although it was kind of saved mm -hmm. by the way that he would then flip to a more normal statement. Like yeah. when he says, well, it's cause you're on television dummy. I mean, he's just yeah. been doing this huge thing and then he suddenly becomes normal. And that was funny, but where on the other hand, um, what's the name he played Howard Beale. I feel Peter that Finch. he did a really good job at the over the top stuff. Like I, yeah. I bought it. Right. Mm. Um, I didn't feel like, oh, here's an actor who's just pushing the edge. So, yeah. um, and I think in the case of Ned Beatty, uh, it might also be the way that Patty Chayevsky spins out his words too. He has a very distinctive style sometimes, and, and that can sort of break the suspension of disbelief a little bit. If I may, I read, you know, I read a bit about the production. Ned Beatty came in at the last minute and hmm. basically learned that speech you know, in an afternoon and then ripped it off. He like was only filming for like a day or so. So oh, okay. no kidding. it's a, yeah, it's a real bravura performance. Uh, you yeah, know, that probably contributes to what I'm talking about where he didn't really have time to sort of absorb that and maybe, you know, get into some subtleties yeah. in it or something. Um, I think at but, that point he was just desperate to get out of the, uh, deliverance, uh, <laughs> you know, he didn't want to be typecast. So. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so, Guy, you get the final word here. Well, I uh, I like it. There, There is one thing I, I wanted to mention that we haven't really discussed a lot yet, um, and that is uh, the character of Diana. I think maybe mm -hmm. she's she might be sort of the thing that fascinates me about this movie, uh, most of all, because on the one hand, she's, She's kind of a straw man. She's sort of set up yeah. for Petty Chayesky to knock over. You know, she's she's sort of the embodiment of, uh, you know, kind of kind of like the alien. You know, she's the perfect organism. You know, a right. survivor. But she's <laughs> she's capable. She's an intelligent. She's charming, and she's also just completely amoral. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, I think that's it. Makes it makes for a fascinating character for me because she's sort of the type of person that you don't want people turning into. And the, the movie's argument is that it, you know, maybe not everybody, but some percentage of the population television is doing this too. And of course we've, we've gone over that and 
a lot of detail. Well, I, I agree. Uh, you're right, and we should probably talk about her more, but it's also it's important that she is of the age that grew up with television as opposed to, you know, uh, William Holden and Peter Finch remember a time before television. They helped invent right. it. And then, um, you know, and it is also, you know, the other thing that is really important for her character is that she's sexually available for William mm -hmm. Holden. <laughs> and, you know, and that there's a whole, you know, layer of the sexual revolution, you know, that is, this is also a timepiece of that. And William right. Holden gets to fuck her and then also mm -hmm. walk out on her with the most sanctimonious speech and go back to his <laughs> wife, who the long-suffering wife, who is also obviously going to take him back. So there's, you know, a kind of greatest generation uh, ambivalence about the sexual revolution. I think that mm. this is very much a part of. There was go a ahead. twist in there, though, that I think is good from what would make it more of a trope of her being, the, you know, sexual person, which is she both says and then yeah. shows that she is not a you know good partner <laughs> no and she can so only she, orgasm yeah. when she's talking about ratings right <laughs> right and then it'll and be then, after and then, 10 seconds and yeah and then <laughs> and then she's done yeah 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 so it's not like sharon stone or something where you're like oh right. yeah this person's gonna you know be a tiger yeah. and you know and all this yeah uh which actually i think in a way was good because it, it did undercut some of that a bit there's and also the robert duvall character is similar in that sense because all he cares about like for, you know, and they're both agreed that like the news should be entertainment, right? You know, and mm -hmm. it should be under the entertainment side, not the news division, right? right and right. then, right. and it's all about ratings and money. And like, you know, it's interesting because Robert Duvall, who's probably, I don't know, you know, he was young, but he's already bald <laughs> he always, and he, he looks old. Exactly the same. <laughs> but they were the new generation, right? Like where they're coming in and they're telling, you know, William Holden and Peter Finch and all of that, they're putting them out to pasture because it's all about profits now and all of your claptrap about, news and truth and all that, you know, go take a hike. <laughs> uh, I will say I had a boss, uh, my last boss actually, who was somewhat <laughs> similar and I don't, I don't want to say in the negative sense, but she was successful in the high tech world as an executive. And she had a lot of those same very outgoing, um, and you know, uh, I want to say, uh, firm statements and beliefs. And this is, you know, and it's like, I, I think part of that is a realistic thing of if you're going to be a woman in this corporate world, especially in 1976, there's a certain way you're going to have to present yourself to get anyone yeah. to take you seriously. I'm watching the dropout right now on Hulu, which is about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. And you, mm. you know, guy, I don't know if you're watching that, but there's you could draw a pretty straight line from Faye Dunaway to Elizabeth Holmes as, as done in, in the, uh, in the dropout, um, which mm -hmm. is interesting. And Ron, it speaks to your point about, uh, you know, how do, how do females present themselves in a corporate setting, particularly in one that is still male dominated? Cause you know, large parts of the corporate world are, you know, it's gender is not the issue that it was, but then yeah. there are places like Silicon Valley and maybe wall street where they're, you know, they're several decades behind the, uh, you know, where the rest of the world is. So guy, last, last word, <laughs> anything else you wanted to say? Last, last word. Um, no, it's just, I, I, I didn't go into much detail about the visual aspects of this movie, but I really, uh, I enjoy that too. Uh, just, just all the shots of, you know, like being in the room where the television show is made and just the, the, the cinematography in general, for me, it, it, the style of it pleases me. There's always something neat to look at, and it's always well-framed and 
good colors and all that art, artsy stuff. You know, but <laughs> no, it's just, yeah. it's a movie that pleases me all around. It's, uh, I might say it's, you know, and it seems stupid to say it about a movie, but it's very filmic. It's mm. very, you know, it's, it's really well put together and the, you know, and, and Ron, I think this kind of follows up on the idea of the overlapping dialogue and whatnot. The camera work is, I wouldn't quite call it frenetic, but at times like it's, it's really active, you know, so right. you're, mm. yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, and this is something Sidney Lumet is, uh, you know, he's, he's a fascinating you know, director, uh, you know, and a guy who had a lot of work in TV and then became, you know, one of the premier movie makers, particularly, I mean, he had a great seventies. Uh, the movie he did before this, I think is dog day afternoon, uh, which is also set in New York. He's a great New York director, I think, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, there's a lot that I think anybody can learn from watching this movie about a lot of different things, but not anything more than, you know, the cinematography and the, and the, the overall kind of way that this is packaged mm -hmm. we didn't talk at all about the uh the mouse tongue hour right which is <laughs> oh necessary. yeah because yeah. there's those moments where it veers into kind of broad satire um which it, is interesting right. yeah. well, mm -hmm. and does that work for you or again is it kind of on the nose that we have the oh you know the the communist yeah, the, marxist revolutionary who yeah. immediately becomes obsessed with numbers yeah, and profit. distribution yeah and, you and, know, and yeah. she's not losing any of her points against <laughs> right. you know to her good for nothing co-star and all of that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean that's where i think it might be the case that chayefsky's anger is kind of getting the better of him because that seems to belong to a kind of different movie in a way um i don't think it gets out of it i don't think it ruins it by any stretch but it's it seems a little bit uh I don't know, you know, a little bit, it hits a couple of dissonant notes. Hmm. And it what? also seems like he, if he has problems, you know, Patty Chayefsky, uh, who would, you know, uh, again, you know, World War II vet, uh, came up in television, et cetera. Like, I think he has some trouble with women and I think he has some trouble with blacks and hmm. it comes through. Could be. I think, I think I tend to take the whole movie as... I mean, it is, it is a drama first and foremost, but I tend to take it as a dark comedy, you know, like even the ending yeah. where Howard Beale was the first man to be killed because of lousy ratings. You know, right. I, I, I think, uh, at least for me, maybe <laughs> I, I forgive a lot of these more on the nose things, you know, like the, the very rapid, uh, descent of Lorraine into, uh, into her, you know, capitalist greed and all that <laughs> i mean I, I tend to accept uh, i tend to accept all these little larger than life things in the movie because i see it as a deliberately larger than life movie on the whole but uh you know really results may vary. yeah he has a uh a strong taste for that because the hospital uh the movie with george c scott and um i think it's diana rigg is also, you know, it's similar in that it is a very dark comedy uh, that is also trying to make like really, you know, big points with total seriousness, but also be like a very, very uh, over the top satire. Um, hmm. And that's, you know, he's where I, I, he's a really interesting character. And, you know, his first big uh, success was a TV play that was made into a movie Marty about uh, uh it was played by Rod Steiger on TV and uh Ernest Borgnine in the film version about a kind of homely butcher in in New York City in the 50s trying to find love 
Mm. And um, Chayefsky is one of those, I don't think, I don't know if they exist uh, in the same way that they used to. Somebody who has had, he had, he wrote a lot of different types of movies and had a lot of success as well as a lot of failures. Um, but, uh, mm. you know, really an interesting kind of character. And I don't know if this was him or the direction or what, and I'm always saying that I don't want to look at woke stuff in older films, but I'm always bringing them up anyway. I was honestly a bit shocked that we get introduced to our black characters as they're eating a big tub of fried chicken. Yeah. And all they were missing was some watermelon. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. really? Really? Someone didn't think maybe we don't want to do this? <laughs> well, do you know? I mean, is it like, is that a parody of the way that you know they think most people see blacks at that time or is it an unconscious kind of thing yeah i don't know it's like it's it's weird and that's also another reason to uh, you know to watch network uh because it uh, you know were older movies that were very popular and critically acclaimed in their day just to see how all sorts of things have changed or when they persist maybe where they come from i think it's worth you know a it, you know, that's one of the reasons why the past is, uh, you know, is worth, rum- is worth rummaging through. Oh, sure. But sometimes a drumstick is just a drumstick. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Nick. Thank you. This was, I'm honored and uh, I, I really appreciate it. Thank yes, you. It was a pleasure. Thanks. And next up, it will, in fact, be uh, facing the crowd. The extraordinary incident occurred in full view of his millions of viewers. The assassins were members of a terrorist group called the Ecumenical Liberation Army, two of whom were apprehended. The leader of the group, known as the great Ahmed Khan, escaped. This was the story of Howard Beale, the first known instance of a man who was killed because he had lousy ratings. Uh, okay, well, let me get us started here since we're <laughs> half discussing it. When always, uh, how always long are we going to go for? By the way, well, it, it typically takes about an hour. If you have a hard out, I can definitely kind of steer us to make sure. We uh, get my hard out is like five thirty, so I doubt we'll be. Uh, yeah, doing yeah. Normally, that, it's like know, an hour, hour fifteen, just depends. Okay, good. Sometimes um, I, I lately, both on my own podcast as well as ones I've been on, like things keep going so like i'm happy i am <laughs> a firm believer in uh i don't know what the what kind of good fake scientific term is for this or technological term but like it's always the last 15 minutes right you know, where things well, really you're you know? noodling around and then like you're finally <laughs> right, hitting awesome. that final uh so the now canceled charlie rose which really disappointed yeah. me because i actually liked his show a lot mm. but um he had this trick that he would do which is, or actually, no, you know who I'm thinking of? It's, um, oh, P- Peter Robinson. Who, oh, um, yeah, yeah, of Uncommon Knowledge. Yeah. He yeah. has this interviewing trick he does where he says, oh, just one last question. Right. And he says what that does is it puts the person at ease. Oh, it's over. Yeah. Then they relax. Yeah. Then he has the rest of the other half yeah, of the yeah. conversation. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that <laughs> is, that's a good one. 
I was just talking, his son, uh, Pedro works for Colin, the, uh, you know, the, uh, audio app, the, that, mm, uh, I don't know that one. It's, it's, oh, new. it's a it's new like, thing. Yeah. It's an improvement on Clubhouse. It. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's an improvement on Clubhouse because you can record, uh, and it, it creates an automatic podcast of the conversation mm -hmm. and stuff. And, uh, uh, but I, yeah, I was just talking, uh, to his son and like towards the end of the conversation, I didn't realize, uh, he said he was from Silicon Valley and I was like, and he mentioned something about his father being at Stanford and Hoover. And I was like, oh, is that Peter Robinson? Cause Peter Robinson is like one of my he, icons of interviewers. Mm. He's really fucking do you great. Know, do you know him, guy? He he actually wrote the tear down this wall speech for Reagan, which is kind mm. of yeah. Peter Robinson, you say? Yeah, that, mm -hmm. that doesn't ring a bell, I find. Yeah, interesting. He's guy. Really, really uh, an excellent interviewer, and his stuff is all online for free at various places. It's still run, I think, sometimes on PBS, but. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I was not a fan of Charlie Rose's interviews because they, I felt like they were mostly about him, but then, yeah. uh, um, well, he just had really interesting yeah. people on and sometimes a little part, bit yeah, of contention yeah. and, yeah. you know, I can certainly yeah. see it either way, but it was, okay. <laughs> I mean, one of the rare interview shows that actually, um, talked at length about stuff. Uh, yeah. one of my pet peeves, especially now that we're in this age of, you know, where we have unlimited uh, server space and, and memory to run long or do weird things. Right. So, uh, you know, it's weird that, uh, cable TV, the interviews and segments need, I uh, seem shorter than they were 20 years ago. So, right. oh, I was going to say, you know, speaking of gurus, not that I would call Charlie Rose a guru, but <laughs> you know, he is a really smart guy and, and I was yep. totally gobsmacked with the me too stuff that he was just like exposing himself to women. And then he said, well, I thought the wanted that you know i'm like what yeah what what's going on here you're like this smart guy talking to the smartest people in the world and you have this idea that, you know, i just don't get i it. think it's <laughs> partly you know when you factor in his age and where he was from and the medium he was working in he's like you know how neanderthal man you know still walk among us he's like from a different <laughs> yeah. era almost yeah. you know um, uh, yeah I won't, there's a whole topic there I won't even yeah. get into. So, okay, I'm going to kick us off here. It sounds like we'll have lots to talk about.